Friday, June 16th, and there was a number of questions that wanted to be addressed uh, to myself, Colonel Murray. Uh, he's invited some peers of his also. We're not going to get through all the questions, but we're going to start from the top and kind of work through them. Uh, some of these, I think, we may have some contrasting views on, so that ought to make for interesting discussion. And this is also a roundtable. So once we get through this uh, submitted list of questions, then we will go ahead and unmute people. It may take a few minutes to get to you. So go ahead and raise your hand if you want to speak, and then we'll unmute you and try to manage this as best we can. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Deb for getting with her community. She took the charge of going and getting most of these questions. Uh, and then there was a few of them that were submitted in channel. Most of these are revolving around uh, politics, geopolitics, and then kind of the center focus of the Trooper Channel is self-reliance. And the reason why we have the Trooper Channel is because it, it dovetails or it integrates in with the political uh, kind of center that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Murray's channel has. I also run a, a political channel as well, but it's more operational for precinct committeemen, mainly in Arizona. And then the uh, the Trooper Channel itself is all about this redneck stuff that we do, uh, mainly water, self-reliance, communications. Um, and as we always say, try to stay out of the conflict space. But in order to stay out of the conflict space, you need to be uh, prepared to uh, protect yourself and be self-reliant so you don't have to go in the conflict space to procure resources. So that's what our channel is all about. Um, I might take a moment to secure my dog over there if he if he uh, doesn't settle down. So with that, I'd like to welcome uh, Colonel Murray, have him open up some uh, comments and also introduce his peers. And then at that point, I'll, uh, I'll go down the question list. Go ahead, sir. Well, I appreciate the invite tonight. Uh, I've asked Colonel Conrad to join. Uh, he's going to be one of the colonels that we do the roundtable with. I thought this would be a good dry run for everybody to, to meet him and to um, hear his thoughts. I, and it's it's good to have a, a good roundtable of, <clears throat> let's just say, um, not necessarily opposing views, but different views. So you guys listen to me all the time, and it's great to hear somebody else talk. And I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. I'm going to let Colonel Conrad introduce himself because he's got a very diverse background, and I think you're all going to appreciate it. So, Colonel Conrad, I'm going to give it over to you. All right. Thanks, Steve. Uh, happy to be aboard. Um, just radio check. You hear me okay? Lima Charlie. Yeah. Okay. Right that. Uh, so my background was uh, 30 years in uniform. Um, initially combat arms, did all the hua hua fun stuff, and then uh, transitioned into tactical intel. And uh, that's really where I spent the second half of my career. So I also spent a segment, I spent about three years uh, on a planning staff for one of the larger emergency operations centers in the country. So I got involved in, uh, you know, civil, uh, military civil operations, like the papal visit and stuff like that. So uh, I've been involved pretty heavily in uh, planning at, uh, at division level occasionally above, but uh, also spent time on several brigade staffs. So I'm kind of right in the center of things, echelon-wise. Didn't, didn't get up to core or above. Um, 
certainly didn't get into Washington and places like that, Steve, like you've been. And what it, Dave's being modest. What? Let me give you the background and, and translation. Dave served at the maneuver level most of his career. He knows how to maneuver battalions. He knows how to do combat arms. He knows combined arms. He knows how to plan combined arms. He knows what capabilities the Russians have versus the U.S. forces. He was heavily involved in planning <laughs> operations to support uh, potential conflicts in, in Europe and in Eastern Europe. And he's being modest. So he brings a, a very, very important skill set right now that I think everybody's going to appreciate. So, um, Troop, let's get started and let's, let's, uh, let's go from there. Roger that. Thank you. All right. So, um, we have an all American ice cream truck rolling through the neighborhood right now. You might hear that in the background. So, uh, the first question was, what are your thoughts on the possibility that the 2024 election would be suspended? And if so, what would that look like? Uh, for me, I don't see that happening. And, and if they did try to do that, I, I think all this kinetic warfare uh, risk that we're trying to avoid would actually happen. Uh, so I'm going to go on mute and, and let you respond to that, uh, Colonel Murray. Short answer is we're not going to make it to 24. That's, that's my opinion. I don't think so. Three things have happened over the last two years that I think are are very important right now. And you've all heard me talk about this, but it bears repeating. They took the presidential election in 2020, but that was a byproduct of the real target, which the, which was the Senate election and part of the swing states. They took the remainder of the swing states in 2022, and they did it through a cornucopia of cheating. I think with the current situation, both in Ukraine, the current situation on the ground here, and the current, the conversations with China and China's actions, we're not going to make it to 24. They can try to declare martial law and shut down the elections, but the bottom line is they don't have the public support. They don't have the support of the elite, and they don't have forces to do it. Uh, and I, this is a good question for uh, Colonel Conrad, too. So I'll turn it over to you, Dave. All right. Well, I think it, it all depends on the conditions that are set. And, uh, you know, as we've seen, the deep state doesn't always succeed in, in directing things as they would like to see them go. They often uh, kind of trip on their you-know-what. But if they can get us there uh, on a simmer, that is to say keeping things from boiling over, so to speak, then, uh, and that would include things like getting Trump off the ticket into jail, um, getting DeSantis or whoever they choose elevated, uh, and of course, whatever they decide to do on, on the Democrat side, um, that's, that's one condition. If, on the other hand, they, they fail to do that, if Trump is at the, you know, Republican ticket and, uh, you know, whomever they choose for the Democrat ticket, then we got a whole different ball game. I think that you will probably see a series of events, if that's the case, where you have, um, well, call it a perfect storm, if you will. They'll, they'll try to overwhelm people um, in what, what we used to call a confusion technique, where you're getting hit with so many different uh, stimuli you're not quite sure how to respond. Uh, 
and you can't take decisive action. So in essence, you get frozen in place. And so the bottom line here is um, if we get that far and they set those conditions and Trump is, is running, then um, they'll stop at nothing to derail that. Now, you may see a major pandemic on top of all the other actions. When I talk about other actions, and I don't mean to be long-winded here, but it's, it's worth discussing for just a second. Um, we've seen now where uh, people in the Biden administration are, are, are actually admitting there's thousands of Chinese, potentially you know, uh, military background people coming in the country. So you've got Chinese, you've got potentially uh, Muslim actors from years ago. You hear about Korans being dropped near the southern border. Uh, that's to say nothing of the cartels and, and other illegals coming in the country. So you have a melting pot of potential threat, people taking action as a guerrilla force. Um, could be limited, could be expansive. But they top that off with a pandemic-type action to keep people in their houses. At the very least, um, pushing for people voting by phone or anything but in person. Um, and as a last resort, they could always declare uh, an emergency under such extreme circumstances and suspend the election. If, if things are desperate enough, I think they would do that. We see how desperate they are in the Ukraine and to what extent they're willing to go. I think that should open our eyes as to what they're willing to do here. Thank you for that summary. Uh, that moves into our second question. And as a, a precinct committee man and as a actual legislative district chair in my district, I, I appreciated this one and I'll hand it off to you in a second. Everything that we have witnessed over the election malfeasance, especially since the midterms is a crisis. Lieutenant Colonel Murray stated that the left has now nationalized election cheating. Overwhelming the polls doesn't seem to work anymore. What is your best reason to convince people that they should vote in the future? So I, if we don't, we're guaranteed to lose. Now, what we did when we came out in the midterms is we had a lot of trap lines set up from the canvassing and from the analysis that Seth Keschel did, that Liz Harris did, that others had done, uh, we had found a lot of cheating mechanisms. And so we had our radar up when we went into the midterms and we, a lot of detective controls, and we were also able to primary a lot of these rhinos and a lot of these shitbags that we didn't want running, like Rusty Bowers, for example. He was a shoe in to get reelected. We energized, we activated our PCs, we got knowledge and awareness out there, people showed up to vote. Now, we didn't see all the malfeasance with the, the machines and with all the other stuff. So sometimes your enemies will move ahead of you and you just kind of have to chase them around, but you have to stay on the center four squares of the chessboard. You can't just withdraw and, and watch, watch the cheating happen or watch the battle happen in front of you. You have to be proactive. So some of the things that we accomplished in midterms is we primaried multiple people uh, all the canvassing validated a lot of the cheating, discovered new cheating mechanisms, and it also put a lot of focus on the ERIC system and on some other things that we've managed to either dismantle or severely depreciate or put a lot of light on. So they can't use the same tricks that they have uh, previously. Now, the other thing is when you get out and vote, some of those cheats we identified mainly from, and I found this in my own district, property owners that live in California and they sublet or they lease their property here in, you know, here in Phoenix or here in Arizona, 
and we're out canvassing, we're out getting petitions and we're meeting people to go, oh, well, you know, Sarah died or my landlord lives in California or, uh, you know, that person moved three years ago or that person died five years ago. When you get everybody out voting, what the left will do is they'll try to inject as many votes as they can into an election. And then we'll just say a district has 100,000 voters, maximum voters. And then you get the, the poll numbers out and you see that 143,000 people voted and 62% of them voted for Biden. You know that's bullshit. So with all the other surveillance that you have, you can start drilling down on addresses. You can reconcile purchase license, uh, driver's licenses, property records, business records, and other things to figure out where these little moles are. There was a map, I don't, I don't remember who did it. I think Seth might have did it about Smurfs and about how some of these cheats work. But if you don't get out and vote and you're not active and you're not engaged, you're just going to you're just going to give it to them. And we don't do that. We don't waffle. We don't capitulate. We don't give up. We don't withdraw. We have to stay in this fight. So we are chasing the enemy around the center four squares of the chessboard right now. But we have to continue doing that because they're running out of moves very quickly. And if we just capitulate and waffle, we just might might as well put up communist flags in our front yard now. So that's um, that's that's my view on that. Uh, Colonel Murray? I, I think, um, so I have two thoughts on this, two diverging paths. So in the case of actually making it to 24, and let's assume all things being equal, Trump's on the ballot, we're not in a civil war, and we're, we're going to vote for Trump and Biden yet again, I, I'm going to play through and vote because Borelli and crew have used the Senate powers to get rid of the machines and get rid of the lot, you know, get away from the lawfare. The lawfare is not going to work in this case because the Senate has powers at the state level to put the governor in check as well as make decisions around what's good for voting. And they're using those powers right now. Now the things we, we can't control, we can't control what happens with the board of supervisors we can't control what happens with the county recorders, but we can have people on the ground, assuming we make it that far. So we'll play through again. But again, I don't have high hopes that because what Fontes and Richter are doing right now is institutionalizing the cheating, which is right out of communist doctrine. You take over and you put people in key positions and then you start to institutionalize and make legal all of the malfeasance that you you did in the first place, but I don't think they're going to be successful and get to 24 for a variety of reasons. And I think Colonel Conrad's analysis of the confusion technique is exactly what they're going to do. I think the enemy always gets a vote. Let me start there. And I think in this case, when you start looking at the moves that China's made and that Putin's made over the last, let's just say three months, we're seeing some very interesting behavior. Now, the, the Bill Gates situation today, that has a lot of interesting connotations. It has a lot of interesting um, aspects to look at. But what that says to me and what I'm seeing on the ground right now is that you're seeing more and more dire movements by um, not just the deep state, but by specific individuals across the spectrum you're seeing these these desperate moves and a lot of these moves are desperate because they're they're frantic to get back the cultural narrative they have they lost the cultural narrative last year 
and they haven't gotten it back. They need the cultural narrative to convince people that all of the things they want to maneuver us into, they need us to sign up for that voluntarily for their plans to work. I don't think they're going to get that far because China gets a vote in this. And if, if I take it face value that there's over 150,000 Chinese, let's just say regular army troops on the ground right now, you don't stage that kind of forces. And I'm going to let Colonel Conrad talk about this in detail because this is his specialty. You don't move that number of forces on the ground unless you're expecting to do a major operation within a very short period of time. Because remember, I talk about logistics all the time. Logistically, there's a lot of things in place right now that require action in a very short period of time. You don't move an entire army into place and then let it sit there for an entire year. It just doesn't happen that way. So <laughs> I don't think we're going to get there, to be perfectly honest. I think we're going to be wrapped up in other issues before we even get to September. I could be wrong, and I hope I am, because I would love to be completely wrong about this and watch our elected officials do the right thing, but I don't have any hope of that. What I, what I actually am put my stock in is the American people waking up and realizing they've been duped and then starting to take action. We've seen this throughout history. We've seen the American people do this several times throughout history. And I think this is going to be a repeat of this. And I think we're in a decisive moment of history. And I think the next piece that people are going to realize, and I talked about disclosures, I talked about a number of other things, all this plays into this election malfeasance. They're banking on the fact that they can have some kind of a national emergency that would drive them into a situation where they can control all aspects of society and then push people to the polls in a way that they is favorable to them. Like Dave said, setting conditions so that they can manipulate the elections. I don't think they're going to be able to do that. They just don't have the public support. So they're going to try something else. And, you know, the only thing they haven't done yet is UFOs, and that's probably on the table right now. So, hey. Everything's on the plate right now. I'm totally open to it. Bring it, right? But in a more realistic fashion, the thing that I that I think they're going to try and set conditions for is some kind of a crisis in Ukraine that involves nu nuclear weapons, some kind of a, I don't want to say a standoff, but some kind of a limited exchange where they can, they can batten down the hatches here and scare everybody to death. Remember, they use fear for everything. They're going to use fear in this case because it's the one thing that they know how to do extremely well. But they're a one-trick pony. They keep using the same you know, playbook over and over and over again, and it's having less and less effects, right? It's the law of diminishing returns. The more you put into one thing, the less and less effect it has over time. It's the same thing here. And that's how I see this going. I don't see us getting to 24. I don't see us having elections. I don't see them having the ability to shut down elections. Because you have this vitriol in the country that's across the spectrum right now. And the other side of this, too, is that the supply chain is starting to shut down. I don't know if any of you have been to the store lately, but if you go to the store, you're going to see the shelves are farther apart. There's a lot more spaces on the shelves. There's a lot less product on the shelves. You're going to see that graphically when you go to the store. There's a reason for that because the supply chain is starting to dry up for a lot of reasons. And all those things are going to come to a culmination point. I think they designed it that way to drive you to a culmination point to move to the digital currency. They may still try to do that, but I don't see them being successful for a number of reasons. But 
I'll stop there and turn this over to Colonel Conrick. So I know you've got some thoughts on this. Go ahead, Colonel. Well, there's there's a couple different questions there. One is, you know, how does this look unraveling uh, if it goes along that track we talked about with the Chinese? But I'd like to address the initial question first. Why should why should we uh, recommend to people that they need to vote? What's the validity in that if we know they're going to be cheating going on? So the most dangerous aspect of the deep state in this regard is that they have an intelligent, adaptive, and reactive capacity. We look at what they did with Carrie Lake in, in her primary. They watched her actions that were successful with certain districts not reporting in. So they couldn't beat her there. But then they, they uh, developed a plan and they counteracted and were successful in, in how they addressed in the midterm. So we have to assume that they've already wargamed things out to the nth degree as to all of these different possibilities. That in turn means um, regardless of, of what they do, we have to recognize something else. We've got an entire nation now, Republicans, independents, and, and we know that the independents are all leaning to the right at this point after you know, two to three years of Biden. Um, but even Democrats, call them blue dog Democrats, traditional Democrats, whatever you like, everyone but the far insane left is leaning away from Biden because they, they recognize the insanity from the cultural perspective, with all of the gay stuff and the pedophiles and, and everything that's being pushed. Um, I know plenty of traditional Democrats that have said to me, we're not voting that way anymore. We've had it. So the way to convince someone to vote and why it's so critical is because we saw in the last couple of elections, both the midterm and the prior election, 2020, it took a massive effort on their part, part of which was time. They needed time to discern exactly what's going on, what the numbers said, and then they needed time to, to um, react and pad their position with all kinds of fraudulent fake votes. So whether you do it electronically, whether you do it through paper ballots, it doesn't matter. They still have to make some kind of an effort to cover their tracks to at least make a reasonable show of it. That's gonna become a logistically daunting task when you look at the disparity of, of how I think the American public would vote in the next election. You know, it's one thing, for example, in Pennsylvania, where they sent truckloads of ballots uh, down from New York into Pennsylvania. Um, I think it was like 280,000 on, on one truck alone, and we don't know how many trucks were sent. Um, those kind of actions uh, they could do again, but it's going to take a lot more than that. And of course, there's another factor that's critical, and that is you know, like Trooper said, people are going to be watching in a number of different ways. One simple action that people could take is, is having some type of cordon or watch over who comes into election facilities and ballot counting facilities. I don't want to go down that road too much because it gets off track. But, you know, the bottom line here is if you, if you get everybody to turn out, the actual vote, and I don't believe you can outvote a machine digitally, you cannot do that, but the actual vote will become enormously logistically difficult 
for them to cover their tracks and do so in a reasonable and timely manner. And I think at that point, it may well stretch things to the bursting point as a triggering incident when it just becomes so obvious to everyone as to what's going on that even the most ardent leftists have to admit, yep, we've, we've gone too far, we've gone over the edge. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, sir. So there, there's one thing I want to address with regard to potential action in what you might call a Trojan horse type of scenario. And that's this, the Chinese are, are have been, I should say, highly dependent on the American public from an economic standpoint. The question, the decision point for their national leadership is, number one, can they sustain the damage if they take the gamble and they trigger people to take direct action in our country because that's that's an act of war and quite literally any kind of response is justified on our part at that point can they we'll, uh, i'm sorry go ahead we're gonna get into into the we have some china questions sir so if i can uh, okay. uh have you close your thought on that and then we'll we'll get to the next one no i was just gonna say they're gonna have to decide how successful they can be and if indeed their economy can survive without the without the American public. That's a big question for them because it's not just about the military aspect of things. The economy is enormous. I'll end there. Absolutely. And uh, so I'm going to jump ahead. I'm going to address a couple questions real fast. More uh, Trooper Channel self reliance questions. Um, one of these I, I answered immediately because I, I put out a lot of information on this. But it is uh, we are a family. Uh, of four and have been storing food and water and one family said that they are storing water in sanitized milk jugs with a couple of drops of bleach and filled with water is that sufficient since they are using tap water to fill you should never store water in milk jugs or uh, juice containers that look like milk jugs or anything like that mainly because that quality of plastic is not designed to be durable enough to sit in storage it will degrade even if it's uh, hdpe plastic which is what you should store your water in it has such a thin layer that it's remember plastics a semi-permeable membrane which means that if you have strong aromatics like you can smell gasoline you can smell pet food you can smell cleaning supplies things like that those odors will trans transfer through that water container barrier even if it's a quality water container and that will contaminate your water supply. So those white jugs, I, I filled up some white jugs today. You should have proper water storage containers if you're going to do long-term storage. Now, if you're in a kind of a tactical, like, oh, we didn't know we needed water and now we're out of water and we need to go get some, then use any container that you have available. But you should, if you're going to have an intent of storing water in containers, you need to get containers that are designed for storing water for long purposes. And remember, water doesn't go stale. Water doesn't go bad. Water is billions of years old. What happens is you purify and you sanitize water, you put it in a container, and then that container gets contaminated either through external organic matter coming into it, meaning that you know you left the, the cap off or dust fell in it or whatever, and it doesn't take much and a little bit of sunlight, now your water's contaminated, or through adjacent pollution, for things like gasoline or cleaning supplies or cat litter, those things are going to go and the the uh, the the odors, the vapors, the what are called VOCs are going to penetrate 
in through that layer and then they're going to make that water dank. And so you don't, you don't necessarily have water that goes stale. You have water that gets contaminated. Uh, so you should never store water in those types of temporary holding containers. They're only designed to hold the milk, you know, a month after the due date and then, and then degrade. And you might find that people who have tried to store water in these types of containers have had them degrade. And then all of a sudden they have water damage or they have a puddle of water somewhere. Uh, so there's that one. And I have a whole bunch of videos on water, so I don't want to get into that uh, in too much in depth. And then we're going to get some political questions uh, in, uh, right after these two colonels. Uh, so uh, here's another one. If, if you live in a state where open carry is legal, why not exercise your right, especially to school board meetings or drag shows? Antifa does it, and we shouldn't because. So this is uh, near and dear to my heart because one of the things that absolutely pisses me off is when I go into, say, a quick trip or a Circle K, a gas station or anywhere, and I see some muffin top redneck that has this ill-fitting holster that's like pointed at a 45-degree angle from their beer gut that basically is a weapon dispenser for anybody who wants to grab that firearm out of whatever holster, you know, non-retention non holster, uh, you know, and, and usually they combine that with a big MAGA shirt with a screaming eagle and some other shit. When you're presenting force you should look like somebody who is at least reasonably intelligent and doesn't need that lethal capability in order to get your point across and when you go into school board meetings first of all institutionally they have the right to bar entry or just simply deny anybody um, to, to have weapons on campus or on that administrative building even if it's not on a, on a school campus but when you're dialoguing with public officials, meaning that you're sitting on one side of a podium and they're sitting on the other side, you know, as a board, we have to be able to address them. First of all, you always want to be polite, especially if you're talking to your enemy. You always want to be polite. And you can attack them in court. You can attack them in debates. You can attack them in other ways. But when you're on their turf and they're sitting on their board and you're a member of the public and you're representing the people that you represent, because remember, I've always said, if you don't, if you don't want to get behind a podium, get behind somebody who is willing to get behind a podium. And when you come into a dialogue like that, you want to have your facts together. You want to communicate clearly and directly. And if you have that weapon distraction, if you're even allowed to have your firearm on you, that is only going to dilute or completely take away any, any effectiveness that your spoken word might have. And as far as firearms go, you know, we love firearms on the Trooper Channel, but usually you see us on a range and we're, you know, we're doing a very specific task with the firearms. We know how to use our firearms. We love firearms. But when you're in a, a civil uh, discourse or a discussion, introducing that, that firearm component into a, into a dialogue of statesmanship is only going to put you at a disadvantage. And then on top of that, my initial pet peeve that I stated is if you're going to carry a firearm on you, which I rarely do. If I do, I generally carry concealed. Um, but if you're going to carry a firearm on you, you should, you should, you know, shave or present yourself, at least take a shower that week. Make sure that whatever equipment that you're using to carry your firearm is, is secure and it has some level of retention, or at least it's not, you know, like I said, here's your muffin top and here's the gun pointing out at 45 degrees. So anybody just can come and grab it. Um, so I, I get frustrated with people in our own camp when they don't think about the image that they're projecting when they're carrying a firearm, because all it does is kind of uh, embarrass the rest of us. So the, to respond to that, you should carry a firearm if, if you're comfortable, you're trained and you're capable. Um, 
and and you always conduct yourself professionally and with courtesy with everybody around you. Um, if you feel that you need to have a firearm to introduce that into any kind of dialogue, you probably shouldn't have a firearm, um, in in my opinion. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let the colonels address that. They'll probably skip over it um, if they don't want to address that. But that I wanted to respond to that. Uh, go ahead, uh, Colonel Murray. I think there's two sides to this. There's the there's the aspect of do I want to be armed wherever everywhere I go? That's that's your own personal decision. In this case, we need to keep the higher moral ground because the the whole idea that the enemy and and I'll let Colonel Conrad talk about this too because I know he's got some thoughts on this. I I personally am not going to take a firearm to any kind of a uh, conversation with anybody in the government apparatus. That's what they want us to do. Part of the Antifa model and the anarchy model is to create enough chaos so people are drawn into the conflict zone. We don't want to fall into that trap. We, If we're going to fight, we want the fight to be on our terms. We want the fight to be in an area where we can set conditions to draw the enemy into us, not fall into their trap. And that's exactly what that situation is meant to do. It's meant to put you into a highly charged emotional state where you react and that reaction drives other reactions. That's the intent of that entire psychological operation. It has nothing to do with the, the social conversation and the dialogue that needs to happen at the political level and the state level, or sometimes a city and the county level. You need to keep those dialogues separate because when you walk in there armed, you walk in there with a message of, I'm ready for conflict. And what we're trying to do is keep the social dialogue going long enough so the gunfire doesn't start. And every time that we acquiesce to those um, those impulses, we we meet the enemy where they want us to meet. They, they've already started the dialogue that anybody that's a patriot is a domestic extremist and a terrorist. They want to propagate that. And if we show up armed, it doesn't matter who fires the first round. It doesn't. Anybody that's on the Patriot side of the house is going to get blamed for it. If you think about the shot that was heard around the world, that shot was heard because the propaganda, as well as the, the, the information war that was being conducted by the Patriots at the time, leveraged the British, their own arrogance against them, and used that not only in the press, but used that in the local communities. That's what we need to do. And we need to draw them into a situation where the enemy does something stupid and we can leverage that and use that to our advantage. Every time we meet them on their, on their terms, they win. We can't allow that to happen. What has to happen now is they need to fire the first shot. It needs to be so loud and so public that they can't hide from it. And case in point, Look at the noise that's being generated right now around Hunter Biden and the Burisma dealings with the, the Biden family. They can't run away from it anymore. Every time we talked about it initially, the press suppressed it, suppressed it, suppressed it. But now there's enough public outcry, just like with the election malfeasance, that they can't hide from it. We don't want to set conditions for the enemy to where they can leverage that and create a backlash against the Patriot movement. We have to wear the white gloves, and that's the hardest part of this because it means innocent people are going to get hurt during this process. But that's a necessary evil 
if we want to win the fight and keep the dialogue going. The point here is not to draw first blood. The point is to keep the dialogue going long enough so that we can set conditions on our side to control the narrative and keep control of it. I'll turn it over to Colonel Conrad. Well, first of all, I echo all of those comments. I think they're very responsible and I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I want to approach this from a slightly different direction since you, you did that from, uh, you know, from, from the uh, civil perspective. Um, within my tactical background, I'm trained in weapon disarmament and weapon retention. We have seen many times where there's video of young guys who uh, they might as well be wearing FBI jackets or blazers or something because you just know who they are and what they are, even if they're not presenting as such. And of course, in many crowds, you find some of those individuals sprinkled in. Those guys are trained in weapons disarmament, close quarters, hand-to-hand -hand stuff. It's a tempting target and easy for them to stimulate a violent situation, attempting to take a weapon off of you and create something that you didn't want to create. So we want to we, we, we want to avoid presenting that opportunity from a from a tactical perspective. Um, obviously, it's it's far better from any perspective to carry concealed because you're presenting less of a target of yourself and of your weapon. But the third comment I have is is I wholeheartedly endorse uh, because most of the people, I'm assuming most of the people listening to this uh, are armed or carry routinely, um, that you include a weapon retention training regimen in your overall training plan. It's, it's something that can save your life. And, uh, you know, again, we don't want things to uh, turn into a bad situation out of our control. You don't need to stimulate that. A handgun is like a nuclear weapon. If you need it, you need it, and it can have great deterrent effect. But once the bullets start flying, you know, the gloves are off, and you can't control the situation um, in a crowd like that. You may control it one-on-one, -on -one, but not in a crowd. So that's, I think we addressed that fairly well, but I just wanted to get in those, you know, the tactical side of that. Thank you, Colonel. I wanted to plug uh, Teddy Spaghetti, who's also on the chat. Uh, he's a professional trainer and uh, a security credentialed. I, I don't know if he's post-certified, but he does uh, post-certified uh, instructions uh, for uh, law enforcement recertification. And I'm going to put him on allow to speak if he wants to chime in. But I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that. And also my worst nightmare is to get into a gunfight. And my, my worst nightmare, worse than that, is to get into a gunfight in a populated area. So absolutely concur with, uh, with all those statements. All right. Um, kind of following along with like signaling your patriotism and this and that. Uh, I was intimidated and took my Trump stuff down. Two flags stolen, hate mail. I finally hung it back up. It's not about Trump. It's about our sovereignty. How can I hang? Uh, how can I hang on my house? Or should we stop focusing on the flags? Um, I, I think it's your your patriotic right to express whatever your point of view is. And you know, it's it 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 sickened me a few years ago. It was probably twenty years ago at this point. The 
Phoenix Art Museum had a display of the American flag where they had one in the toilet and you had to walk across one to get into the uh, to, to get into the, the, the Phoenix Art Museum uh, thing and they had all kinds of desecration of the American flag and they called this art. That was over 20 years ago. I don't remember the name of that, but it absolutely disgusted me. And with most military veterans and anybody who's ever been handed a folded flag, it is it is absolutely fucking repulsive that somehow burning the United States flag is a form of protest, but burning any other flag, including any other nation's flag uh, or non-nation flag is, is somehow this is a hate crime, but it's not a hate crime when somebody burns our flag. So we need to turn that around. Now, as far as presenting things on your property, um, I'm a constitutional libertarian. I don't care if you're a Trump voter, you know, if you're a Democrat, if you're gay, I don't give a shit. If you're going to hang a flag in front of your house, it's your property. You have the right to do that. If somebody comes onto your property and they go to damage that property, now they're trespassing and now you have a different dynamic. And no, we're not going to advocate that, you know, you should have a baseball bat behind the door and just go out and, you know, wait for somebody to show up and entrap them into getting it, getting it a, a beat down. But you can definitely hold people accountable. And there's no reason why you should fear being able to express yourself, um, whether it's a, a, a bumper sticker on the back of your car or clothing that you might wear or a flag on your property or whatever. Um, some, I mean, it would piss me off, I'll be honest with you, if, if my neighbor put up a fuck Joe Biden flag or a, even a, a fuck, you know, uh, whatever, you know, any kind of flag, fuck Trump or anything. I don't want the upward flying in my neighborhood. I think that's disrespectful to the neighborhood and, and uh, you know, there's a place and time to, to fly those types of colors, but in, in your own front yard, that would be offensive to me. But as far as, uh, you know, flying any, any kind of flag goes, some people do that, some people don't. I don't have any bumper stickers on my car. Um, I like to be very, I like to kind of blend with my environment. If somebody asks my opinion, I'll, you know, tell them where I'm at. Um, but I don't, I don't think that anybody should feel suppressed. Part of this whole, this whole terror campaign of BLM and Antifa and this leftist government declaring everybody a domestic violent extremist is to assure that they do exactly that, which is withdraw and mute and get out of, you know, be, be afraid to speak up so that they can continue to steamroll their agenda. That's why the tagline for the Trooper Channel is domesticated terrorist pets because they go fuck FBI and anybody else that doesn't like my freedom of speech. And although we don't like to get vulgar, there is a time and place to get vulgar, but it, it's not in your front yard uh, where your neighbors can see it and it's not in church. But it's, you know, if, if you want to express yourself either, either uh, you know, with colorful language or not, I think you should. Um, but it doesn't hurt to have cameras or some some type of surveillance or detective control on your property. So if somebody does come into an intrude uh, mode that you could capture them and then hold them accountable or, or just do that uh, that electric fence thing that I've seen because that's a non-lethal uh, deterrent. You know, you put those, pen, those pet fences around your property, you can run a 50,000 volt low amperage wire, you know, up to the side that's holding your holding your thing and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe have some fun with that. Um, and thoughts on that, Colonels? Uh, uh, presenting your colors and your patriotism versus being suppressed and not. Yeah, don't back down. Don't let them mute you. That's the whole agenda. They want to shout you down. They want to shout you into submission. Don't let them. And don't be scared of them because that's, the, that's their whole thing. They bully people into silence. We can't let them do that anymore. We can't back down. And we can't let them tell us what's okay and what's not okay. That's been the problem all along. 
get along, go along to get along. That's been the, the motto for how many years now? We need to stop doing that. I didn't, I didn't go and do a frigging combat tour just so I could come back and let some trans pedophile tell me I can't fly an American flag in my yard. And I, I know there's other people on this chat too that have gone through that with their HOA. They've gone through that with their neighbors. And I, I'm fortunate. I have I only have a few neighbors that are complete libtards, and we've already had words, and it didn't go well for them. So I'm not going to get any blowback in my neighborhood. But suffice it to say, you should never, ever back down from not only believing what you believe, but saying what you believe. As long as it's not offensive to everybody else, full send. If they don't like it, they can go fuck themselves. That's right. That's <laughs> All right. Um, and no other comments on that? Yeah, I got a comment on that. Master Sergeant Donna, how you doing? Pretty good, Troop. How you doing, buddy? Doing great. Welcome to live chat. Yeah, I just wanted to say that uh, uh, Trooper and, and Colonel Murray, you guys are real pillars of the movement. And, uh, you know, when guys like me in 2021 were flailing around online, it was guys like you and, and Steve and Harry that, you know, threw a lifeline to us. Uh, us old crusty veterans, but uh, in regards to the uh, what Steve just said, what Colonel Murray just said, the fear is part of the psyop, and once you grasp that concept, it becomes very easy. They need the fear, they need the uncertainty, they need the instability because that is their motivator. Because if you fear that, oh, I may not say something, or I might lose this, fill in the blank. They own you, they got you. Your basis for life as a free American citizen is the constitution, learn it, know it. And it's all there. It's all there in writing by our ancestors. And don't be afraid. Get out of there. Hoorah. Did you guys see that? Uh, I don't know if Lily Lake or somebody posted it, but it was a scene out of The Bug's Life where the crickets were talking about letting one ant stand up. And like, oh, it's just one ant. Who cares? And then he, he made a bunch of seeds just like bury his little cricket friends. And he went, that's what happens when you let one stand up, then they all stand up. And then they realize that they outnumber us. And that's what we need to do. Um, I'm just saying do it with class. And any anything that I do, I'm very slow to act, but I'm very decisive when I act. So, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't like a lack of discipline, uh, but I do like the science of action. And, and as we're starting to project and put ourselves out and find our voice and uh, Master Sergeant Donna and, and Colonel Murray, we have classically as conservatives been too accommodating, too polite, too courteous, too wait our turn, too don't talk over somebody else when they're speaking, um, because that's, you know, that's how our parents taught us. And, and that has absolutely been exploited by the left. Uh, so it is. It is time now to break break into a dialogue. If you know, if the person that that's chirping at you is just full of shit, chirp back, right? So um, I don't see anything wrong with that. All right. Next question: um, Do you have any recommendations for what types of food to de to dehydrate and how to store it in shit hit the fan? What are the most important things to grab and go with? So this is kind of complex. Uh, first of all. Uh, I think all of us, uh, Colonel Murray, uh, Master Sergeant Donna, uh, a, a group of us, we don't, 
do what I what I call trying to sell you dehydrated Bitcoin and bomb shelter beans. We don't we don't put stuff out there uh, and we don't fund our channel with with all of this type of stuff. But you do need to have a food supply and a water supply. And I've always said you should have a minimum right of uh, five gallons of water, uh, 15 gallons of water in your home for every person and pet that lives in your home, a minimum away from chemicals and pet food and gasoline and everything else stored somewhere in your home. So 15 gallons minimum per person and large pet. And then a goal of five gallons of water per person per day for up to five weeks. And that five week number is because they have a, a, a storied amount of disaster response experience. Uh, and most disasters, the way that we look at them, like a Hurricane Katrina, a, a Northridge earthquake, um, the fires and floods, Rodeo Chetiskai fire here in Arizona, these major disaster events. Is anyone there? Uh, I'm sorry, somebody was speaking, Hello. Mary Chapman. Hi, Mary. Mary, I'm going to put you on mute if you don't have a question. Okay. All right. So um, hopefully uh, Mary's on mute and I didn't accidentally kick her. I'll let you uh, talk if you raise your hand. So the, the, whole, the whole five week thing with food and water has always been based around my training, experience, observation, and research of disasters and how quickly they resolve themselves. So the food that you have in your pantry right now if you like corned beef hash, have corned beef hash. And if you like, uh, you know, Wheaties and milk, have Wheaties and milk. Eventually the power is going to go out and then you're just going to have Wheaties and water. But the types of food that I recommend people acquire and have in their home are not necessarily dehydrated food or long-term storage food. Uh, it's actual edible food that's as close to live or living food as you can get. Um, hold on, I had a little technical difficulty here. There we go. Whoa. All right, can you see me now? Hold on a minute. Um, but if you, but as far as the, the long-term storage food that I have is dried beans, dried rice, uh, all different kinds of beans, and you want protein, starch, and then I recommend having vitamins to augment all that dead food that you would be eating in a in a kind of a crisis environment. Uh, I was in the first Iraq. And uh, I call it the great camping trip. It was, I have the privilege of being a veteran in one of the only wars where we killed more of our own guys than the enemy did, which is, which is an unfortunate, uh, you know, albatross to hang around your neck, but it's true. But one of the things uh, that was reality was I was in a cavalry regiment and we spent all of our time out in the field. So for about seven months, I ate nothing but MREs. There was two times that we had K-Rats, which are just basically MREs that they heat up in a hot water bath. And your turds turn into rocks. And, you know, it's not a good time. And so the, the reference to that, though, is that you're eating a bunch of dead food for a really, really long time. It's not good for you. So you want to figure out how to augment that with vitamins and with, you know, protein drinks and with other things. But as far as the dehydration goes, um, I think Dragon 6 is on. Uh, Krista has uh, showed us canning videos where you, you know, she cans meat. So there's hot canning, uh, you know, there's, there's a pressure canning, which is a little bit more complex. And then there's just steam bath canning, which you can do for basically uh, um, acidic foods. And you should get into canning if it's something that you can do, but it's not something that you should get into if you're already on a limited budget or you have a limited amount of space or you don't have anybody that to kind of mentor or guide you just buy canned goods because the amount of money that it would cost to get into canning versus the amount of canned goods that you can purchase, um, you know, your opportunity cost, you might as well just buy the canned goods and any canned goods that are off the shelf are fine. 
what I see a lot in the like in Winco and the the, the dehydrated food and then the freeze dried food is they have shit like um, cream of broccoli with asparagus slices or, or some something that you would never ever eat on your best day. So if you see this garbage and uh, you know it's it's like pork pork rinds and and cheeseburgers or whatever some awful combination, don't buy that stuff because you're 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 already going to have low morale anyway. When you're eating these field rations, why do you, you know, you don't want to be the guy that gets chicken a la king, right? So um, buy food that has the highest amount of nutrients as possible. Uh, if they're in cans or jars, most of those have a, a basic shelf life of two to three years and they're good for several years after that. And then if you want to make that one-time investment to get uh, fully uh, dehydrated or, or fully freeze-dried or, or fully oxygen-sealed food, I recommend that you get oxygen sealed whole food, like whole grains, whole rice, whole beans, things that you have to figure out how to, how to settle, boil, and cook that are going to have a maximum amount of, of uh, nutrients in them, um, and not not this uh, you know these these mountain house things where every every product is uh, you, you pour boiling water on it and then something comes out of a bag and it's supposed to be it's supposed to be edible. So there's there's that, and I think if uh, Oh, okay. let's see. Who's our uh, a resident expert on survival food? I don't think Dragon Six is on. Anyway, um, I'll let the colonels kind of touch on that uh, briefly. The 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 uh, dehydrated food and uh, bomb shelter beans. While I'm I'm uh, going to my next question. Go ahead. I'll let Colonel Conrad go first. Uh, my two cents uh, are these. Um, as far as a bug out bag or tactical uh, situation, I think peanut butter is a great thing to have in your kit. It stores well, it carries well, it's okay in cold, it's okay in hot. Uh, it tastes pretty good, it gives you fats, it gives you uh, some protein. It's tough to beat as, as um, if you need something quick to grab and take with you on the go. Copy that. All right, we're going to get more more political questions now. Uh, and I, so my background, uh, Colonel Conrad, is I'm a threat analyst, and we can have an offline conversation. But I, I do a lot of research, and then a lot of the things that I come up with, uh, people in your in your camp usually ignore my recommendations. <laughs> but I think you know what kind of just based on that job description, uh, you know what kind of role I'm in. Uh, why is Putin allowing this war to go on so long? If he reigns in firepower, why doesn't he take over Ukraine and wipe out Zelensky and the Ogliarchs? Uh, I get that he doesn't want to kill innocent civilians. However, uh, weren't most evacuated. And um, I'll, I'll uh, defer to, uh, to the colonels. I would like to comment on that, uh, if I may, before I hand it over. I'll All right. So, what started this um, in the the in Ukraine? For most of us who've looked at these maps for the last uh, three years, is you have this kind of contested region where now you have this uh, this um, I'm just going to call it the ethnic southeast region of Ukraine that I don't think that they got a vote when they when they made a decision to become part of Ukraine as opposed to part of Russia uh, when the Soviet Union fell but they uh they're mostly russian-speaking people now if you look at russia ukraine and Belarus, they're called the three slavic sisters for a reason because they're very closely related and it 
it, it frustrates me when I see these types of conflicts because I see the same thing in the Troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, the same thing with the, the Tutsis and the Hutus, the same thing uh, in a lot of other regions where you have people that are very, very close ethnically, but somehow they hate each other. Uh, but Putin's whole move was he was frustrated because we wanted to put what are called mid-course defense systems or anti-ballistic missile rockets, if you will, uh, in Ukraine that were going to basically take away Russia's uh, strategic uh, ability to protect itself. So we have this kind of mutually assured destruction thing where they have nukes and we have nukes and everybody has nukes. And so if nobody shoots a nuke at anybody else, then all of us live. And if anybody shoots a nuke, then every, the whole world dies. Uh, so the United States, led by the United States, uh, NATO wanted to put what are called mid-course defense uh, missile systems that are capable of intercepting an intercontinental ballistic missile mid-flight before it can even get into the upper stages of the atmosphere and essentially declaw Russia's ability to have a nuclear response. And Russia said, "Stop doing that. Stop talking about it. Um, and if, if and if you do that, we're you know we're gonna we're gonna respond." So I think Putin at some point decided two things. First of all, this racist Azov battalion that was harassing uh, the, what is it, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Dontesk, and uh, the other kind of southeastern regions of Ukraine, these, these ethnic uh, Russians were being abused by the uh, members of basically the Ukrainian National Guard or this Azov battalion, but also these, these military threat projections that were coming in from the West because Zelensky is a puppet and Ukraine is really kind of a strategic landmass. Russia didn't want that stuff with, you know, with, within, their, within their threat boundary. And so the easiest way to explain it is if Canada started putting um, anti-aircraft missiles on our northern border and Mexico started putting anti, you know, some other type of offensive capability on our southern border. So if we flew a plane up or we try to do anything, it could be blown up by Canada or Mexico. We'd be pretty pissed off about that. And so we would tell them, you know, back that stuff up or, or get it, you know, get it away from our border. And that's exactly what Russia did. And they were, um, NATO was just saying, no, we're, you know, we're going to do this anyway. So that kind of, that kind of cracked open the conflict and there was a lot more dynamics to it than that. But from, from my assessment of it, it was mainly that we were projecting a, a, a threat that was depreciating their defense and response capability. And Russia is not, the question is why doesn't Russia take out uh, Zelensky and take over Ukraine and all that other stuff. There's a lot of people that are trying to make it out uh, as if Russia is going to go imperialist and they're going to take over uh, Western Ukraine and Poland and Germany and, uh, you know, Moldova and whatever. And they're just going to start this kind of Napoleonic imperialistic mission westbound. I don't see them doing that. They don't have the capability to do that. Their people won't support that. Uh, they're not equipped for it. They have nothing to gain by it. And they already in this conflict have established a a pretty strong working relationship, almost like the old Warsaw Pact model uh, with China and, and with, um, with Iran and with some, some surprising uh, relationships with, with India and China, which really shocked me and Saudi Arabia. So they don't, Russia doesn't have any interest to push uh, past uh, Kyrgyzstan, Dontesk and, and then maintain uh, Crimea. I was one of the only analysts to declare that they were going to go all the way to Odessa and take everything 60 kilometers north of the Black Sea. And I think if, uh, if, if they can negotiate what's going to happen in uh, Western and, and uh, or I'm sorry, in Eastern and Southeastern Ukraine, Russia would be willing to pull back and they might have a force contingent left in Odessa, but I think they would be willing to pull all the way back 
and then take those three regions, which one of them they already control, or it's an autonomous region in Crimea, but take uh, the Donetsk region and, um, and the Kyrgyzstan region and fold that back into Russia or make those autonomous states that, can, that would allow dual citizenship between Ukraine and Russia. And I think that would resolve the crisis. And then Russia uh, provided that they had an assurance that nobody would be putting mid-course defense missile systems in Ukraine, they would probably be willing to withdraw and then, and then conclude this conflict. Um, at least that's that's my assessment from the, you know, from from my training and background. So I I definitely want to hand that off. To, uh, uh, start with you, Colonel Murray. Uh, actually, I'm going to let Colonel Collins one. He's he's more of an expert on this than I am. Okay, I want to just um, make one quick comment. Maybe it's for future discussion. Certainly not tonight. If you look at this from a long-term historic perspective, you can go all the way back a millennium and a half and talk about Ashkenazi Jews and Kazarian Mafia and things like that. And if you don't think that, that uh, some of these conflicts last for 1,500 years, just take a look at the Balkans and Yugoslavia and some of the things that have gone on there. So I'll leave that lie and deal with the current state of events and, and current motivations. First of all, Troop, I agree with uh, you know pretty much all the comments you said. I throw in a couple of things here. First, Putin, go back to his experience. He was former KGB. Um, you know, he was involved with some of the problems in Chechnya, some of the miscalculations there, and in a sense, he made a similar mistake here. My understanding is that the FSB, which is essentially an intelligence. Uh, agency uh, did a lot of the heavy work on the planning side for the Russians. Their assessments were obviously incorrect as to how they'd be received when troops crossed the border. They certainly were not seen as saviors or liberators. Um, it should have been the Russian general staff. I think Putin was also racked with problems because he faced certain endemic and infrastructural challenges with his army when they went from the Soviet Union, and then suddenly lost literally half their manning strength um, going to the CIS. And so they were in the midst of dealing with a number of issues because they really can't man their units in the way that they used to. Um, what, we've, what we did not see out of the gate was the kind of heavy-handed force that we traditionally expect from, from the Russians. The, you know, quantity has a quality all its own perspective. I think Putin tried to handle things like a Western military, um, restraining certain elements, not bringing in heavy art artillery, things like that. Uh, and then only introduced it later on when he had to. Um, but I, I also think that from a tactical perspective, he didn't have one unified commander, one unified ground commander until seven weeks into this war. That's a critical error on his part. I mean, when you've got three different avenues of approach, three different efforts that are disjointed, uncoordinated, and, and not mutually supportive, it, well, it leads to chaos. And um, so he, he's committed several cardinal errors from a strategic leadership standpoint, and that's probably why he went in and gutted the fifth directorate of the FSB, uh, you know, putting them to blame for some of the things that were really his decisions. So we've heard from a lot of experts in the whole situation about the pending defeat 
of Ukraine. Um, I've never really agreed with that perspective simply, well, for two reasons. First, uh, the Russian army has not acted like the Russian army historically used to act. Um, they're not operating at a brigade-centric level where they've got true combined arms force and the ability to, to overwhelm an objective. They've been working at, at uh, battalion level and below, which is not in their wheelhouse, and, and nor does it reflect uh, effective training for their you know, mid-level and junior-level officers. I think we've seen how deficient they can be. And so this has led to this circumstance. And, and compounding the issue is the fact that the Ukrainians have essentially been, it's almost like weekend at Bernie's, where you know they seem to be down and out and, and almost lifeless at times, but then they're, they're propped up by the deep state. As long as there's two privates that can sling an AK over their shoulder, I think the deep state will keep propping them up and, and continue the fight. So without getting too much more into the weeds, because I don't want anybody's eyes to glaze over, you have two different sides here operating very similar combat equipment, very similar tanks. You go right across the board. Much of the weapon systems are, are basically different models of the same vehicle. And so it, it makes it more difficult for one side to gain a tactical advantage. I think Part of Putin's problem is Zelensky and the West are not necessarily going to be agreeable to, to allowing him an honorable way to exit the situation. And while he, while he maintains a great deal of support at home, I think it's, it's uh, better than most Americans expect, he still needs to do this with, with his reputation intact. Um, and I, and I think, in fairness to Putin, we've got to recognize that when the American Department of Defense acknowledges that there's 46 different biochem labs that have been funded uh, sitting on Putin's border, you know, that, that's certainly pretty good reason. We certainly would never put up with something like that with the Russians putting, you know, biochemical warfare labs on the Mexican border with us. So... Um, you know, we can talk politics all you like, but the bottom line here is he's got to have an exit strategy, and so far, that's that's not really been put before him. And so I'm not sure what that looks like. Um, the Russian army can't seem to, you know, coordinate things well enough to to take things to the next level and wipe anybody out. I mean, we've seen back and forth, back and forth. And as long as the West keeps an endless stream of, of uh, you know, volunteers, recruits, people shanghaied, uh, armed with whatever weaponry can be, can be garnered, uh, they're going to stay in the fight as long as possible. So this is, this is what makes for a quagmire. Um, you know, this is the kind of thing people will scratch their heads over in the future. But somebody's got to architect some type of reasonable uh, withdrawal plan for both sides. I have no idea what Putin would find acceptable, but if he can claim success, hold on to part of the territory, um, demonstrate that he has, has disabled these labs, then I think he would be fine with that. I, I don't think that the kind of manpower necessary to overtake the rest of the country 
uh, or for for that matter, even Kiev. Um, I don't think he has that in his reserves. It would take overwhelming firepower and, and essentially flattening what remains of, of Ukraine to do that. And I'm, I think from the very outs, outset of this conflict, that was not in his intention or in his goal because he wanted to maintain effective economic relationships with certain elements of the West. So your, uh, your, your voice is starting to warble a little bit. I'm not sure if you're on a headset or not, but uh, so it may just be a traffic buffer. Uh. <coughs> okay, how, how are you reading me now? Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I'll move on to the next question, and then uh, and then I'll, I'll we'll come back here. So, the bio labs had come up, and that honestly disgusted me that we had so many of these different bio labs, and they were all over all over the world. There were some in Africa. Uh, one of the questions was, um, you know, what you know, why has Putin been silent on this? I don't I don't think that he has been. We're going to uh, transition into uh, China. Uh, after this, we're going to do one more. Um, it's kind of self-reliance question, but uh, where is it? Uh, it was a question as far as the bio labs go. I don't think I don't think China was silent on it. Um, they identified, they successfully targeted and prosecuted all those uh, all those sites that they're aware of. I think if they had their druthers, they they probably would have preferred to drop uh, their own special forces in there and try to recover as much intelligence as they could, as opposed to just blowing them up. But I think that after, uh, after the conflict started, the uh, the Ukrainians were also wanting to destroy as much evidence in those sites so that that uh, information would not be captured by the Russians. So the Russians, I I think, just had to just blow the labs up. But I don't I don't believe that they were silent on all of these labs. Uh, and then to follow, I'm going to connect this to another one. Uh, Colonel Murray is uh, why doesn't Russia just release the doomsday tapes? And um, I'm not going to comment on these doomsday tapes, but there's there's a lot of questions on, you know, why if Russia has all this information to implicate Biden, to implicate uh, all of these other oligarchs and, and the, you know, why aren't they just releasing this information out there to the public domain? And uh, and then what, you know, what, what's the deal with them in the in the bio labs? But in, in my opinion, the bio labs were a military target. They had to prioritize their destruction of them uh, so that the 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 content or the materials that were in those biolabs couldn't be extracted and they just kind of had to take a loss on on any intelligence that they could have recovered from capturing them uh go ahead colonel murray well to start with the biolabs they have released a ton of information to the un based on what they captured in the initial phase of the conflict now as far as disclosure goes the problem with disclosure is Putin doesn't have a platform to reach everybody across the planet. Remember, the U.S. is still predominantly controlled by the mainstream media. And alternative media, just like Telegram, doesn't have a wide enough audience for him to capture the narrative and capture the, the uh, American public opinion. And he needs that venue for any of that to be effective. That's been the problem since we started this is that there's not an effective source of truth that people can go to that's reliable enough for them to believe it. And then there's the piece around the cognitive dissonance. Just because you release it doesn't mean people are going to buy into it. It has to be in a format and on a platform that people trust and will consume and believe. And that's the that's been the problem 
all along. And again, part of the, the communist doctrine is to flood the system with garbage so nobody knows what to believe. And it goes back to what Colonel Conrad was saying earlier about creating this chaotic situation where people don't know which way to turn. That's what we see in our in the information space right now. You have so much disparate information that people don't know what to believe or where to look for truthful information. That's been the that's been the linchpin for all of it. I think Putin made the case to the UN initially to show that the US through the Defense Threat Reduction Act agency, sorry, had a viable biological program that was on their border, which gave them justification to move into Ukraine in the first place. That was part of the catalyst to move into Ukraine. But a month later, and then two months later, China chimed in and said, there's not just 12 labs or 11 labs in Ukraine. There's 300 labs across the planet, and here's where they are. And all of them are run by not only the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, but they're also run by DOD. And then here's the pharmaceutical links. And oh, by the way, here's all of the oligarchs and all of the politicians that are heavily involved in this. And here's the linkages through all these different shell companies. They presented all of that evidence to the UN. And the response by the EU was to shut down social media and shut Russia off of social media. So that information couldn't get through. Until Putin gets a viable information platform that he can push information to that people will believe, it's a moot point. That's so disgusting. Uh, it's, it's nearly as, well, it is disgusting on its own right. The other thing that's disgusting, and I wanted both of you to comment on this. Uh, this is my own question to the group. Um, the the amount of brutality that I've seen and you know the videos have been released on both sides with uh, uh, shooting EPWs, abusing EPDWs, uh, desecrating uh, war dead, and then I've seen a lot of professional soldiering too, where they're you know where they're 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 gathering remains, uh, they're returning them, uh, you know, in, in prisoner swaps and and all this other stuff. But the the thing that separates a a, a political conflict that can end. And I've always said they don't they don't give rifles to the smartest and the best and the brightest in society. It's usually the dumb ones that, that are combat arms. But if uh, if you know if there's an engagement and then the engagement concludes, those those two soldiers on those opposing forces would much rather have a beer with each other than than kill each other. Until you get to the point where you see some of this this absolutely horrific war crimes that are taking place. And for me, this is a this is a breakdown of military leadership. This is showing that you have morale problems, and you have the wrong people that are on the front. They're not being immediately pulled off the line, but this is fomenting a lot of hate, and then a lot of uh, you know a lot of retaliation and reprisals. Where you're, these these uh, these battle spaces are so close to cities, and they're so close to extraction points that there's no reason not to take prisoners and not to secure them, get them to the rear you know, what is it, search, silence, separate, uh, speed to the rear, and and they're not doing that. So, and this is on both sides, and I don't want to say it's happening more on Ukraine or, or Russia or with the Wagner Group, but it is happening. Um, but as, as far as these conflicts that never end and and just the absolute hatred, I, I just wanted to get both of, both of your comments, Colonels and Master Sergeant Donna, if you want to add to it, 
on uh, the, the brutality of warfare and what is necessary brutality. Like if a bomb goes off, you're going to get dismembered and what's unnecessary uh, brutality, which is if somebody's already out of the, uh, the engagement space or their ability to, to, to continue to fight, then there's, uh, there's got to be a temperance and a mercy there. Uh, go ahead, Colonel Murray. I'll let uh, Colonel Conrad take this one. <laughs> I thought you might say that, but, uh, well, let me start with this. Um, we have to be careful in terms of what we know. Well, uh, there's three things we used to ask ourselves in tactical intel. What do we know? What do we think we know? And what don't we know? And we're living in a day and age where you've got digitalization that can change virtually anything. It used to be if you had video on something, you had hard evidence. I will just say in this conflict, the level of propaganda and disinformation has been staggering because I've seen examples where, for example, Ukrainians have claimed that an entire town was flattened. And you think that's the case because it looks that way on your screen. And then you find out that, no, that was digitally enhanced and it, the town's actually not that damaged. And I'm not saying that there hasn't been a tremendous amount of damage. I'm simply saying our old ways of of what we know are less certain than they used to be. And so we have to be careful with how we react to some of these things and, and what we consider to be evidence. Um, I do think, you know, it's when you get into cultural conflicts with ethnic hatred and things like this, well, you know, obviously the gloves come off and Europe has a terrible history of all of that. I'm not sure we're ever gonna solve that. That's an, an unfortunate part of human nature. Um, and I, I'm also not sure what kind of intervention can be done to police any of this. Um, it's, it's a situation that, you know, as, as an American citizen, I don't really want to see the United States getting any further involved in the situation than we are. I'd rather not be as involved as we are probably. Um, but there's, there's limits in certain regards as to what we're going to be able to do here uh, when it comes to human rights, et cetera. I think in the aftermath of the situation, you've got to have, and perhaps the leverage you could apply at this point, is you've got to say, all right, we're, we're going to have a heavy policy influence here based on how you act. And if that carries any weight, great. I'm not saying it will. But um, I'm just not sure how much leverage we have at this point to interact uh, and really have impact on some of the things Trooper talked about. Thank you for that, Colonel. All right, so I'm going to combine a couple of questions. Uh, we have a lot of we have a lot of people on the channel that are non-military and a lot that are retired military, uh, and then we have a lot of folks that are in the retirement age and a lot of people that are income limited. It's really easy to see all of these. Uh, this information's content online and some guy has a bomb shelter and eight years of food and whatever, right? And, uh, and most people don't, most people don't have that. They're on a limited budget. So on the Trooper channel, we've been, we've been trying to do content that's more aligned with reality, right? Not, not just budget reality, but reality. What do you really need? What you don't need? Uh, Jim put out, uh, Jim S on the Trooper channel, put out a link to a list of a hundred items. And I thought that was probably the best list that I've seen because it was things that made sense. Some of those things are regional, 
Um, you know, if you live in cold territory, some of those things make more sense than if you live in a hot territory. But they were all inexpensive things that 50 of them you probably should already have in your home anyway. And then I've done a lot of uh, videos and I'll continue to do content on just everyday common sense things uh, that you should have. And then also how to take care of those everyday common sense things. Like I like wool blankets and you, you, know, you need to know how to clean your wool blankets and things like that. But there's two questions here that are really important. Uh, one of them is the bugging out. And you guys know I hate that term, bugging out. We spend a lot of time, whether you're in an apartment, a trailer park or a home, uh, you know, your whole life and most of your, your investment in, in your effort from working is in the place that you live. So for people to just immediately have a first thought to, to leave their home um, concerns me, but there could be a, you know, a fire, a flood, a nuclear radiation cloud, you know, coming from, from the nuke plant, if, you know, whatever, there could be a reason to evacuate. And uh, I've, I've done videos on that as well, where I have these uh, purpose built bags, like uh, for a while there, Brandy and I, it seems like every other week we're in the hospital, somebody was dying, somebody got hit by a car, somebody's having a baby. So I put together these uh, these two bags specifically for the hospital and they have a like a cell phone charger with a cable that's appropriate to your phone, a small uh, blanket, rolls of quarters with dollar bills wrapped around and things like that. It's purpose built, uh, you know, for that particular, uh, you know, one day, two day thing. And then you guys have seen the bag that I carry. And, uh, you know, like uh, Colonel Conrad said with peanut butter, I don't I've, I've had a lot of peanut butter. So that's not the first thing I'd put in my bag, but I have, uh, you know, trail mix and and other stuff, it contains peanuts um, and uh, multivitamins and, and things like that. But here's the two questions as far as evacuation goes. And if uh, you, and there's another link, I wrote a big, long, extensive white paper on a lot of this stuff, but uh, I'm starting to understand things could possibly go uh, bad for our sovereignty. I have two dogs and a disabled vet husband. We are just starting to collect and pack things uh, will you have any links or pamphlets to share on your podcast or channel? Yes, already have that, and then we'll repost them. And then this uh, connecting it, having seen your parents and grandparents, uh, there's a group of us wanting a recommendation on or if something horrible happened to say evacuate now, then what should we pack for them, uh, you know, long-term or even if we were ordered to leave our homes immediately? So there's, there's two questions here. One of them is identifying uh, people that you care for that are in your circle of concern. And the most important thing there, and Colonel Murray and I had a conversation about this the other day, is you need to let people know who are not in your circle of concern that they're not in your circle of concern and that they're gonna have to self-rescue. And you also have to be strong enough to understand that if you have Aunt Maribel and she lives three hours away from you in a, in a long-term care home, and uh, some kind of conflict happens, you're not gonna be able to get to Aunt Maribel. So some of the people that you might care about may be too far away from you and they're going to have to self-rescue. And one of the things that happens a lot with the videos that I do with people, like, oh, I'm just going to go to Trooper's house. He has water, you know, he has food, he has guns. And I say, well, you're not within my circle of concern. You are going to have to self-rescue. So we're going to give you all the skills, all the rules, schools, and tools that you need uh, to do it effectively. But you need to, you need to figure out um, maybe, maybe because of where you live, maybe it's your son or your daughter that has more room and you might need to have this conversation and they're going to be the, the primary resource, uh, you know, that you're going to go and evacuate to their house, or maybe you'll have family members that come to your house. Uh, so in my case, it's my home and I'm responsible for nine people and I've made provisions for nine people. And, uh, I have nine, nine people that either are going to be able to get to me or they're close enough to where I live that, 
there's a there's a reasonable expectation that I'm either going to be able to extract them or they're going to be able to uh, you know make it to my home. And then anybody that's outside of that circle of concern, they're they're on their own. They're just going to have to self rescue. Uh, as far as evacuation goes, the small portable containers of water you guys have seen that. I posted a video today. Those five gallon they call them card packs, but five gallons of water weighs about fifty pounds, and you should have. 15 gallons of water in your home per person and large pet minimum. So that gives you uh, 15 to 30 gallons that you could throw in your vehicle and then get out of Dodge quickly. Uh, there's a lot of people that have a, a an RV. I have a, a 22 foot trailer and the thing is, I mean, a bug out dream, right? But the thing is you got to hitch that 22 foot trailer to a vehicle and then try to egress from a city that is probably going to have a lot of traffic congestion or roads that are shut down especially very early on in some type of disruptive event where people are panicking, people might be looting. You know, there might be a lot of things going on. If it's a storm, there's going to be telephone poles that are in the road. They haven't been cleared yet. Uh, so the, the priority, number one, is have a list of people that either you're claiming responsibility for or that are going to claim responsibility for you and then figure out what your role is in that, um, in that teamwork and then for everybody who thinks that you're going to be their savior, you need to tell them to self-rescue, tell them to join the Trooper Channel, and then they can learn how to how to be self-reliant. Uh, but you have to be realistic about who you can save. Uh, I shared the story with a few people. I was a posse deputy with the county, and we were up at the Rodeo Chetiskai fire, and we had fire lines, and we had roadblocked. And this one guy had to run into where the fire is literally coming to destroy the neighborhood up in Cholo. And this guy's got to go get some heirlooms or some some photographs or something. And he breached the roadblock. And that, so I was notified. I was doing patrol. And I'm like, well, shit, I have to go get this guy. So I go into this fire zone that now is like a no man's land. And I identify, I locate this guy. And I'm like, I will tase and mace your ass if you don't get in the fucking car. We need to leave now. And so we get out. And, of course, that whole section got burned. And I thought I did a good deed until I got back to the talk. And the command dressed me down. Right then, right there, I said, look, we've invested a lot of money in your training and your equipment and the vehicle that you're driving and everything, and you literally just put yourself in danger to save an idiot who wasn't following the rules. And that could have cost 20 people their lives because we take one deputy off the street, then we have one less deputy to service people who are trying to follow the rules, right? So you have to be realistic. And, it, and it, I took that pretty hard at the time, but now I understand exactly what, you know, why I was being dressed down you have to understand that you may have family members that you love very much, but they're too far away for you, from you to help them. And you need to, you need to be, you need to reckon with that and you need them to reckon with that. So that way, if there is a conflict, you realize that you're not going to be able to go save them. They're not going to be able to come and save you. Uh, so that's that. And then just being able to have, um, first of all, I say stay out of the conflict space, at least for those initial three days. You never want to go anywhere if, if you can help it for three days. And the way that disasters normally go is there is an event and then there's chaos and then there's confusion and then everybody realizes they don't have an AM radio anymore or whatever, right? And then they're like, oh, I have a radio. A trooper told me to get and I never watched the videos on how to turn it on or use it. Um, your radios, your FRS radios, your MURS radios, your GMRS radios. Um, I'm an amateur radio operator. I think you should all do that. But these normal consumer grade radios are generally for just communicating with your neighbors. Hey, Bob, are you okay? I noticed a fence is down. Um, it looks like Mary's roof is on fire. Maybe we should go over there with some hoses and, you know, some shovels and throw dirt on it. So these, these basic communications happen organically 
in neighborhoods where you're already trying to get to know your neighbors. If you're one of those people that just drone into your home and you don't know anybody on the left or right of you and they don't talk to you and you don't talk to them, even in situations like that, if there's a regional uh, disaster, people will organically come out of their house. They'll start to go into that kind of collective state. They'll start to, to establish uh, a, a neighborhood um, uh, circle of communication and self-reliance and that'll happen naturally if you can develop that ahead you need to do that and if you can't just I, I don't stress too much on all these complicated radio communication plans and all this other stuff but you should have some frs or gmrs or murs radios uh, we'll get into that i want everybody to become a licensed amateur radio operator so that we can do the nvis i see that the uh, uh yavapai is on the live chat now and we're doing what's called nvis or skip which is how we get communications over mountains um, and that stuff. So your communications are part of your kit, but just local, what we call walkie talkies, HTs, those are fine for now until you develop your skill set. Don't buy things that you're not trained how to use. Don't buy things because you see us using them. Um, buy things that are gonna be immediately relevant to you. Now, as far as elderly people and kids and stuff like that, if you're a diabetic or if uh, you have incontinence or if you uh, you have sleep apnea or you have any other kind of a, a need for a medical device or batteries or a power supply that runs AC power to run one of those medical devices um, or you know you can just stockpile things that, that don't need refrigeration, those are the things that you need to consider having in your, your bug out bag, which will probably be bags of stuff. And that way, <clears throat> as you've seen with the homeless stuff that I do, if you don't maintain your personal hygiene out in the field, you immediately become a disease vector. You take yourself out and then you take out everybody around you. So personal hygiene, uh, any kind of consumable medical stuff, water is always at the top of the list. And then people ask about weapons. <coughs> if you inherited a 38 caliber snub nose revolver from your grandpa and it has two cartridges in it and you know how to shoot them, then put getting another weapon at like number 60 on your list of priorities. Start with a water. Um, the food, the medical care, the personal hygiene, things that are light, uh, start out with trying to pack a bag because your vehicle's going to either break down, run out of gas, you get a flat tire, the road's blocked. And then, you know, now you have a whole vehicle full of stuff. Um, <coughs> but try to, try to plan small. And then, uh, and then I'll leave on with the, with the water filtration that I do. I like those Sawyer, uh, the Sawyer straws, not the life straws, but the Sawyer inline filters. And then we use uh, chlorination, uh, calcium hypochlorate, like F-chlor, uh, aqua tabs, things like that. Um, and, but the, so identify who's in your circle of concern. Uh, make sure you know who you can evacuate, who you can't, uh, what their plan is to get to your home or you to get to their home. And then be reasonable in the amount of stuff that you think you can take with you. And I would also include some basic paperwork, your passport, just basic stuff like that. Um, if, if you have photo albums that go back 75 years, maybe you need to uh, digitize those because they are not going to fit in the back of your car when there's an emergency. So now we're going to move on to China, um, colonels, and you guys will really enjoy this. So I've done some extensive writing on bricks. We called this, uh, you know, before all this stuff started moving along. I don't think that China uh, can sustain their economy without the United States. We like to buy stuff. And even if they bring in India and they elevate everybody's, uh, you know, uh, income to middle class or whatever they think they're going to do uh, with this with this new uh, corroboration, they're not going to have that. They're not going to have the, the the recurring revenue streams that they have if they destroy the U.S. economy. 
but there's a lot of questions about uh, how long can China hold its power after the fall of the U.S. until China falls. So, so the action reaction. So if they take us down through any means and we have a non-functional economy, um, what do you think the result of that is going to be for China? And what do you think the timeline is going to be for China? Um, well, first, uh, I think my son Donna had something he wanted to say. So I'll let him chime in first and then I'll answer that question. Yeah, uh, Troop, uh, that great analysis. Uh, also, uh, uh, Colonel Conrad. Um, I think, at least as far as I understood the original question that was asked was, what what do we do at the base level? Uh, what if we can't move? What if we can't go to a bug out spot? What if we have to actually fortify and defend the place where we live, like our ancestors did? You know, I mean, uh, you know, you think about think about there's no gasoline and there's 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 nobody has horse and buggy or anything anymore. I mean, not the general populace doesn't. How did our ancestors survive? Well, they survived by banding together. Know who your neighbors are. Form a neighborhood watch program. You know, invite them over. You know, have have like a picnic and invite all of your neighbors over and say, hey. You know, those start with those that are like-minded, those that you know you you trust. You kind of get an idea of them. You, you don't want to invite the 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 LGBTQ flag, <laughs> the flag person in in their front yard. You don't want to invite them. But you know, get to know your neighbors. Get to know who the people are around you. Build relationships. Okay, start from there because in a crisis situation where communications come down. And law enforcement is taxed to the limits, if not over overwhelmed, it will have to fall to local neighborhoods to protect life, property, liberty. So that's that's what I would say to anyone out there who's, you know, in addition to all of the, you know, supremely articulate and spot on accuracy of all of the prep information that troop is putting out you're going to need to build relationships you're going to need to build lines of communication trusted lines of communication for what is probably coming down the road and that's all i wanted to say trooper i appreciate that and and i i can also tell you from being in real real world disaster response situations uh pets are a big deal i i think it was uh, Prescott, I was somewhere and they had they had like a fire and a flood at the same time. It was just like this weirdest thing. And so what we'll do is we'll take over uh, high school gymnasiums or middle schools and then we'll turn those into mass care centers and communication centers. And this particular uh, situation, we had like chickens and cows and goats and angry dogs. Like one of them, I thought I was going to have to shoot the dog. And we, we had we had no food, we had no uh, cages, we had no way to corral them up. And, and the people were bringing their, uh, their farm animals and thank God this tractor trailer showed up like on the second or third day of this flatbed. And it had all these cages and all these different types of food and hay. And uh, they had uh, uh, veterinarians and they had people that were specialized uh, with to, in training with animals. And then they were able to set up these, uh, this cordon where, where they could deal with all these animals and stuff. Um, but people, people do come together and add on what, uh, what Master Sergeant Donna said is one of the issues that we have in disasters is people who 
who have had no communication or first responder or you know they aren't engaged with the Red Cross or the Sheriff's Office or search and rescue or any other type of public response will show up with a gun and a radio and go, I'm here to help, right? And you're like, you're in the way now, get the fuck out of the way. You're not trained, you're useless to me. So I would encourage everybody to go ahead and you know, start out with getting your heart saver certification, do some basic, um, you know, you can do a lot of this online. It's just have a basic understanding of how to do first aid, how to do critical life recovery. And then if, if first aid's not your thing, I see that with a homeless camp. There's a lot of people that really freak out on, you know, some of the injuries that we deal with, but they're really good at fixing bicycles or they're really good at doing something else. Um, but knowing your neighbors and then also, you know, knowing knowing what neighbors might be a concern for me it would probably be the uh you know the house that the cops have been to 15 times in the last year you know if you have one of those houses on your neighborhood maybe those aren't the people i would invite to my home but uh but getting to know your neighbors a lot of times will happen after a after a conflict or after a crisis happens and um you know and then at that point speaking with you have to treat people with dignity and respect always but generally in a crisis the the leaders are self-evident so nobody's really in charge in a crisis it's people that are showing concern and compassion for others um and the you know the white papers that i read that the first thing i'm thinking is we need to establish sanitation where are people going to drag their trash where's the burn pit going to be where are people going to shit and piss what's going to happen after the toilets overflow you know so i'm i'm already thinking about that stuff so if i was going to engage with my neighbors I would already be talking about these things that are going to happen three to five days from now and then what to do, you know, to either to avoid or to mitigate those things as, as they approach. Um, so that's all that training you'll find on my channel and, uh, and you know, generally online. But people will organically kind of cluster up. And uh, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to, uh, to, to leave you out of that, uh, Colonel. So if you wanted to, to add on to that, um, not really uh, field warfare, but but definitely uh, you know civil civil concerns. I, I think there's so I want to. Um, I've let Colonel Conrad. Um, I've asked him to take a lot of these questions for a couple of reasons. I th I think everybody's heard me on the sit reps talking of, and I think it's good to get a different flavor. And I'm glad Master and Donna jumped into this too, right? So. I've talked about line of sight and sphere of influence at nauseum since November of last year. And that's exactly what I'm talking about is community and building a network and building a, you know, a, a calm infrastructure around you. So you have line of sight and you can expand your line of sight and include your neighbors and people that are trusted. It's going to be very important moving forward, regardless of how things shake out in the next few months. That's always a good thing to have. But more importantly, it takes us back to you know, societies of early 1800s, 1900s, when cities were forming, everybody knew who their neighbors were. I remember as a kid living in Seattle, my parents knew everybody on the block. They, they had dinner with literally, you know, barbecues, dinner, socialized with everybody on the block. You go out and get your mail and literally talk to your neighbor for an hour. That was just part of our social doctrine. And We've forgotten that because of social media and social media is designed to disconnect you and keep you away from making human connections. And if you look at the younger generations, they do everything online. They get their validation. They get their reassurance. They do all of their interactions online. 
they do very little face-to-face. And when you watch them face-to-face, they're extremely awkward because they haven't had that human interaction. And there's a certain amount of that that we need to get back to just as a society so we remind ourselves, you know, that humans are social beings and that social aspect of our lives is going to be more important moving forward than it is right now. The, the next piece of it is talking about China. China is integrated with the rest of the world, but we're seeing a de-globalization happening right now for a variety of reasons. China would love to be able to influence us and instill a social scoring system here. Then they can dictate what the society does, what the society doesn't do. And today the UN talked about basically controlling ammunition across the planet. Now, they're not going to be successful at that because pretty much everybody's going to tell them to go pound sand. But you can't tell me that China didn't have something to do with that. You know, the, the, the quandary right now related to China, as I see it, is threefold. The first aspect is the information side. From an information perspective, they, they have complete control of their country, Europe, and partial control of technology here in the U.S. because they build most of it and everything that they build phones home. So you have to assume that they have control of most of the that's here that's, that's come from China, which means they control a lot of the information space from an economic space. I'm not, a, I'm not an economy guy, I, an economist. I, I'm not a finance guy. Um, and one of the things I, I like about Tom Luongo is the way he looks at things is similar to the way I look at things. But the piece that he talks about that I firmly agree with is that China doesn't want to be the reserve currency. They want to have a bipolar world where there's two currencies that are competing for dominance in the world because it benefits them in a number of ways. Whether that's going to be successful or not, that's, that's, that's in the future somewhere. But existentially, China has a number of systemic issues that could drag them down at any minute. The first of which they've extended a lot of loans to this Belt and Road Initiative that's put them on the brink of collapse. If one, you know, one piece of their supply chain, one piece of their, of their economy falls apart, then the whole thing falls like a house of cards. The other piece of that puzzle is that the Chinese have manipulated their currency to the point where nobody knows what it's really worth from a valuation perspective, much like the U.S. dollar. The fiat dollar and the yuan are almost the same when you look at the way they've been manipulated. And that's part of the problem. Now, do I think China wants a digital currency? I do. But China wants to back their digital currency with gold. And like Russia, they don't have enough gold reserves to be able to back their currency in total, which I think is going to be a hybrid. If I listen to Jim Sinclair, Jim Sinclair thinks that there's going to be several iterations of currency restarts over the next 10 years into 2035 until we get to a stable currency across the planet. And it's going to be China fails, we fail, Russia fails, et cetera. I don't know how much of that to believe. I, if I believe Martin Armstrong, 2034, 2035 is when the real reset happens and we don't know what it looks like. Until then, it's going to be civil war. I, I really don't know what it's going to look like. I know this, though. Everything that you see in the markets here is manipulated. Everything that you see on the SWIFT side is manipulated. 
most of the transactions that happen across the planet are still done in SWIFT, despite all the reporting saying that this country is moving off, these countries are moving on. The problem with the currency situation across the planet right now is that even though SWIFT is the system of record that people want to move off of, just like the press, there's not a system of record and a transactional model that's in place yet that is secure enough and reliable enough and has enough resiliency and enough, let's just say, reputation and street cred for people to buy into it. The talk around BRICS is one thing. Actually establishing BRICS and doing things takes time. And I don't think they're there yet to move everybody over to this new BRICS system and establish some kind of digital currency that's backed by something. Just logistically, that takes time to do. And I think they're going to find out once they do that, that whoever owns the system is going to be manipulating the system just like they manipulate SWIFT. And then the dichotomy becomes which one's a more transparent system or at least cleaner system for people to use. And that's always been the problem is that there's not one clean system to use because there's corruption all around. So China has a number of systemic issues. The other one that is plaguing them is this, this um, real estate issue. They, they basically built empty cities thinking that the cities were going to grow and they were going to turn into these, these trade centers and it just never materialized. So China has, has that problem going on as well. And now they're trying to mobilize for war and that's going to move them in a different direction as well. So, you know, I, just like with the U S it's hard to predict which way it's going to go, but any number of things can trip them up and send them into a tailspin. I think they're dependent on us as far as consumer goods and trade goes, and they're trying to offload some of the trade to other countries. But at the end of the day, the American public has always been the bellwether for every other trading partner because we're the ones that actually do most of the consumption on the planet. You're not going to get that consumption in Europe. You're not going to get that consumption in in uh, in the Eastern Bloc countries, you're definitely not going to get that consumption outside of Asia. And I don't know if Asia is mature enough to be able to offload all of that trade for China. There's too many variables there, along with currencies that make that a you know muddy waters. And even with SWIFT dealing with Asia has been a tenuous process at best. So I think, regardless of what China says right now, they're two to three years away from being able to do anything wholeheartedly. And even then, I think they're going to have a lot of systemic problems that are going to trip them up. Colonel Conrad, uh, uh, first addressing question of uh, local neighborhood evacuation and uh, those things and then moving to China. Okay, right out of the gate, I want to compliment you, Troop. Uh, I've learned a lot from your channel and the stuff you're talking about. And it's not like I was poorly informed to begin with, but you really bring a lot to that, that discussion, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you, sir. I, I will say this. I was chief of plans for a United States Army division. And so I think in these terms, and I don't want to sound like Captain Obvious, but you'd be surprised how many, how few people make realistic assessments of their situation. So wrapping up all of the things that, that Steve and you were talking about, I would simply say this. People need to begin with an accurate, cogent assessment of their situation in detail. You can't know where you're going unless you know where you're beginning. 
and they need to couch things in terms of what's the most likely course of events or you know in the military we call most likely course of action and what's the most dangerous course of events or most dangerous course of action and if they do that they're probably going to be okay but wargaming things out and and asking these tough questions what if this happens what if that happens it, it again it sounds like an obvious situation but it's it's startling how few people plan in detail and so i i think simple steps like that um, are fundamental for people to be successful but i think with guys like you talking about this stuff it drives folks in that direction so i think you're doing a great service with that on to the second question um as is often the case they say timing is everything you know i'm not an economics expert but i do look at things from a tactical operational and strategic perspective the chinese well let me back up one step i'm not a big fdr fan but towards the end of world war ii fdr did something that was absolutely pivotal for the future of the West and particularly the future of the United States. He gained a close relationship with the Royal Saud family in Saudi Arabia. And so he gained access for us to the Gawar oil fields that have basically driven much of the Western economy and Western success. That was a huge strategic win for us and we beat the Brits and we beat the Russians to that. And so we achieved uh, an ascendancy that has essentially made us the preeminent world power. China, I think, watched very, very closely as to the path that the Soviet Union took and the path that Russia takes, and they've learned a great deal. China, as a culture, are by nature somewhat on the conservative side. They're not necessarily risk takers. As we all know, they tend to play the long game. One thing that frightens me most about China is when you look, for example, at Xi Jinping city, which is being built as we speak, it's all about shipbuilding. The Chinese are currently building about five military vessels for every one that we build. They've already eclipsed us in number. And you, you, can, you can talk to any strategist, but particularly go back to Alfred Mahan, who wrote about the importance of sea power in in world competition and world domination the chinese have learned that lesson they're expanding by leaps and bounds and so that provides a a structural uh facility if you will for them to grow their economy for them to grow their outreach i said earlier they're going to reach a decision point when whatever event is coming whatever whether that's triggered by the 2024 election or or other cultural factors we don't know but with whatever event is coming that leads to massive change china will have to make that assessment are they capable of surviving without the assistance of the american taxpayer the american economy if they don't feel they've reached that point critical mass call it then they'll remain conservative they won't overreach, but as you can, you know, talk to anybody in in Third Special Forces Group, and they'll tell you China is all over Africa. Their access to precious and vital resources 
is truly impressive. If you take a look at Afghanistan, for example, I don't think our, our guys were out of there 15 seconds and the Chinese were already already signing agreements to gain dominion over Afghani uh, lithium mining rights. And so when it comes to whether it's electric cars or AI or any of these things, they're going to have the inside track towards you know high technology in the future the way that they're going and so they've got the manufacturing capability they're building the infrastructure for the outreach on a global perspective they're doing all the right things that say russia or the soviet union failed to truly do and that 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 makes them a daunting um daunting nation from a potential perspective but i don't think they're there yet and I suspect that we're going to reach some type of uh, definitive event before they're fully there. And I think that will that will prevent them from acting in quite as decisive a manner as they might otherwise like to achieve. They'll buy their time. Um, I'm not sure, Steve, and, and believe me, I, 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 I'm not an economics guy whatsoever. Um, I'm not sure that China wouldn't want to be the the dominating financial power on the planet. Um, uh, certainly, they don't see uh, ruling every country as as a realistic objective. But I think the ability to influence the way the United States has influenced things because of our currency, uh, I think that kind of um, goal is well within their their aspirational plans. I'm going to uh, turn it into a roundtable phase. I uh, thank you for staying on uh, so long. I don't. I never have a time format with my live chats. I like everybody to have a as much time as they need. So thank you for indulging that. Um, so everybody, I'm taking you off a of mute. Go ahead and raise your hand uh, so that we can enter into the roundtable portion of this, and then you can direct questions at myself. Or Colonel Conrad, or Colonel Murray, Master Sergeant Donna, uh, Teddy Spaghetti, or, or anybody else, and uh, we go ahead. So I'll be scanning for raised hands uh, as I kind of close on this thought. It was frustrating for me when I saw China moving into Africa, and it was definitely frustrating when we saw them go into Afghanistan and basically, like you said, turn over leases on mineral rights five seconds, you know, after uh, after the conclusion of hostilities. But mainly in Africa, which if you think about Africa itself as a, as a landmass, there's no reason why they shouldn't be the, the dominant, um, you know, a, a confederation of countries that are, that are just literally driving the global economy. And the, and the fact that China has, has been able to go in there to the fault of the United States and develop these relationships, some of them nefariously, but develop these relationships and these and these footholds. Uh, nonetheless, it's just it's uh, another disgraceful failure of our of our, uh, in my opinion, of our of our political uh, policy. So, uh, Chris, I'm going to go to you. Um, go ahead, Chris Gibson.
Hey, Troop, are you on mute? Oh, sorry about that. I was going to say, if you have any questions for myself or uh, uh, Colonel Conrad, Colonel Murray, uh, go ahead and raise your hand or if, you, if you're able to just start uh, speaking. I'd appreciate it if you could raise your hand so we don't double. For a, sec for a second there, I actually thought I lost sound. I was like, ah, oh, my sound card died again. Oh, uh, no. I know we did. I got a lot of private messages on how come we're not talking about the United States? How come we're not talking about the southern border? How come we're not talking about these, uh, the invasion of both, uh, you know, cartel human trafficking, uh, these Chinese nationals and all that other stuff? We did. I wrote pretty extensively on that. And um, actually, uh, Colonel Conrad, I'm, I'd really like to hear your perspective because we predicted as soon as uh, we abandoned Kabul, said. The, the response to uh, a counterattack to China, that's, it, it, it really think about it that way. I was thinking about it more of a um, multiple threat. So if we had fundamentalists attacking us and we had Chinese attacking us and we had, you know, a, a, a layered of, you know, you have your cyber attack, you have logistical attacks, you have the internal attacks on our infrastructure and then just straight up terrorist attacks. Just um, the, the thing with terrorism, though, and Colonel, this is something I'd like you to comment on. Generally, when when you blow up school children in malls, you're doing that because you have your own agenda and you want to have people afraid enough of what you're going to do next that they're telling their government what they want, what you want their government to do. Um, typically, terrorism is where your your opponent is more powerful than you, so you're going to do things internally to shift the mindset of the public so that their policy will be more favorable to you as, as uh, you know, as their enemy, as the opposed force. But the type of terrorism that we're seeing now is just, we hate America, so we're just going to kill as many Americans as we can until, you know, we die. And so the, the, the concern that I have as a threat analyst is that we can't really, we can't really look at a lot of the potential threats to our, to our people and our infrastructure from the perspective of, if we normalize relationships with Somalia or with this country or that country, then then these threats are going to diminish. Um, it's more of a matter of not only do we have this unbridled hatred for the United States, but we have these lone wolf factors that can't be controlled. And then a lot of them came over with a lot of weapons that we've lost control of. And so now we have the perfect storm of uh, layered threats, nation state threats, and then these lone wolf threats that are all, all kind of happening at the same time. And, we don't want to black pill as the term, you know, we don't want to just doom say that bad things are going to happen and there's nothing we can do about it, but we do have to cause of the threat environment that we're operating in now. And so for, for China to attack us, there's going to be a cost, right? There's going to be consequences for an organized uh, effort to attack the United States. And so they're able to control the people, that could attack the United States and stand them down. But there's also that other contingent threat of those who are just wanting to, they're just bad actors basically, uh, that have also come in with the wash across the border. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, first of all, you make a great point. Um, I can remember 20 years ago being in a training facility and we were told flat out that people we thought that were crossing the Southern border uh, we, we thought they looked of his, Hispanic descent, 
dark skin, dark hair, dark beards, etc. And yet they were finding holy Korans on the ground and realized, you know, any number of these folks were Muslims. So you're almost limited only by your imagination in terms of the number of threat vectors. Yes, you've got potentially, tra- uh, you know, militarily trained PLA members coming in from China. You've got uh, Mexican cartel uh, members coming in. If you look at the cartels from Mexico, my God, they're they're so well funded. Uh, honest to goodness, they're they're as well funded and well armed as as a uh, United States Army Ranger company. They've got handheld any tank weapons. I'm sure they've got some surface to air missiles, things like that. There's a lot of damage those folks could do if if unleashed. Um, but you've also got the domestic element of this. You know, you've got the the BLM Antifa aspect of this, and this is where the waters really get muddied. When, when you start fighting back against some of these folks, you run into that question, all right, who's the bad guy? How do we identify when some of these folks look like us? That's not an easy thing. Um, go back. Now, let me backtrack for, for one second to the good old days of the Cold War. And I can remember when SDI and Star Wars was the big discussion. Can we make this work? Do we have the technology? Do we want to invest the money? And I remember sitting in front of a man who was a retired former strategic missile commander for the United States Air Force. And I asked a question that, that he didn't have an answer for. And the question was, given the fact that suitcase nukes exist and are likely pre-positioned in pretty much every major American city, um, don't you think the first strike is going to be from that rather than you know a missile-based system? Again, he didn't have an answer for it. And so, you know, I ask myself, how far has China gone with their infiltration? Would they have the equivalent of a suitcase nuke in any of our cities? I I don't know. Um, I don't think they want to get into something that's going to precipitate a nuclear exchange. I don't think they're that confident. Um, and, And again, we're limited only by our imagination in terms of potential targets and things like that. You know, there was a, a guy who ran for Congress. It was an engineer a while ago. I, I don't recall his name, but I'm sure some of the folks would remember the a couple of books he wrote. Uh, I think one was called One Second After, One Year After. And they were talking about the United States power grid, uh, or at least one of the three power grids mm-hmm. being on and on and on reduced. And, um, you know, when you talk about potential damage, you know, there, there's a, a key vulnerability, especially because, as far as I'm aware, we still haven't put the funding into having spare parts available. But you could reduce a huge swath of the American population if you shut off the eastern United States power grid in, say, the middle of winter. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but it's the, the amount of the potential for devastation is, is almost limitless in that regard. Yeah, I agree with you, Dave. I, I so th- I, there's a you can play out a number of scenarios, right? My the point I've been trying to make for the last several months is you don't move this number of forces into position unless you're planning on something, and they can do a lot kinetically to disrupt not only our ability to retaliate if they go into Taiwan, they can go after critical infrastructure, they can go after military bases. They don't even have to do it kinetically. They can do it through cyber and they can disrupt all of our logistical operations at the drop of a hat. But to me, movement of this, so there's, 
there's two parts to the to the border stuff. It's not just people coming across. It's the fact that our government is building communities and moving people into communities. And then you've got these military age males, which they're moving to parts unknown. They could be going to military bases. They could be putting them in police uniforms. They could put, put them in the Capitol Police. They could be they could be putting them in the IRS. I was reading about a, a, a raid today in Great Falls of a Great Falls gun shop by the IRS. And all they went after was the 4473s, the forms that you use when you purchase a weapon. They didn't go after any of the financial records. So they could be staffing the IRS with with these foreign nationals. Who knows? The point is, we don't know what the level of infiltration is, which was a good point. And number two, we don't know what the government's going to do should all these people surface their head. If I look at this from from just a, a communist color revolution perspective, the, all they have to do is disruptive operations and create terror and chaos, which is part of that doctrine to convert a country to communism, which could be their sole role create chaos in the big cities so they have to declare martial law create a catalyst event to swing public opinion etc cetera, etc cetera. and history is replete with that so there's a number of different scenarios that they could play out i i definitely think that there's kinetic on the way i just don't know what it looks like steve let me just offer this comment you bring up some good points but one of the things that they could be looking at is what does it take for the deep state to declare martial law in the United States? So maybe they launch a number of limited strikes within the U.S. that wouldn't necessarily be fully attributed back to, you know, China as a strategic decision, but rather the, the action of uh, some, you know, individuals or desperate groups, things like that. But the point is, perhaps it might be more realistic to think they're here to trigger something, generate a response, and provide an excuse for establishing martial law. Well, Absolutely. Now that, now that you've got martial law, maybe we need to just disarm everybody as an argument, that's, right? We gotta, that's we exactly gotta, what they want to do. Exactly what they want to do. I don't and think then things are going to get uh, really interesting after that. <laughs> Could I change for a second? Go ahead. Yeah. So that scenario only works if people comply, and they will only comply if rational thought has been cut off because they're afraid. So again, people need to stop being afraid, build relationships, and don't fall for any of this false flag stuff. Don't fall for it. That's my comment. Concur, and uh, and I don't want to turn this. And we have a couple of questions. I'm gonna I'm gonna respond to uh, from chat. I, uh, apologies for ignoring my own chat. Um, one of the advantages that we have just living here and being citizens is that if there was an organized martial law, uh, like armed force that was to pin people down in their homes or whatever. Is those those types of Units require beans, bullets, and benzene. They require contaminant areas where their equipment goes, where their fuel is delivered, where their food is served, and that's a big footprint. And the United States is a tremendously large area to operate in. And uh, I think Colonel Murray's talked about this too in, in other um, in other contexts. But we uh, we're not going to get pinned down in martial law. And uh, in, in, a, in a national, nationwide martial law type of thing. I don't. I don't even see that being 
possible. Uh, we have seen National Guard and police forces, you know, come in and this whole thing with the UN and the blue helmets. If that happens, the gloves are off. But you can you can pin down uh, a small town. You can you can pin down a few city blocks within a larger city. And there's a legitimate law enforcement reason to establish command and control if you have civil unrest or there's a purpose uh, to, to have that type of response. But to normalize the the marshalling of, of forces to control a population indefinitely or to provide, uh, you know, a gate criteria where you have to show your vax card or you whatever, for whatever reason you can't leave uh, this zone to go to that zone and to sustain that for, for any period. I don't, I don't see that working out too well. And then I think there's some of us on the phone that, that actually have um, the, the training to undermine that, that type of uh, totalitarian um, uh, situation. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But the attempt at going martial law would be more of a communication mission and then, and then hopefully a compliance uh, response. I don't see it. I really don't see it working out. As Master Sergeant Donna said, and uh, others, we just we just tell them here, fuck you, take me, and then eventually they're going to get depleted because there's more of us than them. Hey, troop, can I jump in for thirty seconds? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Hey, so sorry, I'm really late to this, guys. I I got new hours at my job, and I'm kicking ass as fast as I can. Um, that being said, uh, do you think groups like GBRS and um, what used to be Blackwater and all these other subsects. Um, Cause I, through this group and through the sit reps and everything else, we hear from you guys, you know what I'm saying? Um, but those guys that are, got those private entities, those private shell companies, if, if you want to call them that, uh, if they're outside of the government in terms of not being the quote unquote government, why aren't any of those smaller groups standing up and speaking out now and creating an internal, you know, defense against some of these things. Because, uh, you know, Eric Prince and guys like him, they've got money to say, fuck off and stay away. And, and you know, maybe not the entire country per se, but maybe quadrants or sectors or vectors or whatever the case may be, where individual companies who were once in the military, what have you, who have that knowledge and skill set and those logistical things, like you were saying, the supplies, the people, they already have that. So they would be at an advantage if you're talking about inside versus outside forces. Am I wrong in that? Um, I'll, I'll start, I'll respond to that before uh, the colonels do because I have a, a more of an operational, uh, so first of all, mercenaries work for the highest bidder. Second of all, you have rules of engagement that are issued to uh, mercenary groups like that. Said, you know, your mission is to go here, guard that, escort this, protect that, and then they're they're funded and they're equipped and they're operationalized by government or by whoever's paying them. Usually, the government. So, but there's no standing force and there's no there's no apparatus or capability for a for a paramilitary organization to just simply exist on standby like a militia. Um, so, what you would have is those same members are either already working for the government in, in different capacities as employees or they're retired military that, that form into these mercenary groups when there's a, a need to 
um, invoke and operationalize them. But after they disband, they're just people uh, like like you and I. There isn't any standing, uh, you know, XE battalion any anywhere. So I'll, I'm going to hand that one off probably to uh, Colonel Conrad. Well, you know, it's funny. I was listening to, um, I think it was Patrick Byrne, I want to say. And this was a while ago. And he, he told this story about being at an event. And uh, at a break, somebody came up to him. Two guys came up to him and said, hey, um, you know, we listen to your stuff. And if you tell us to jump, we'll jump. And we've got 6,000 guys armed, trained, and ready to go. And and Patrick Brown was, you know, kind of taken aback by this. And he's like, no, I'm not going to tell you to do anything. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, I, I don't hear about too many groups. I'm sure there's any number of people that uh, have organizations and things like that. Uh, but I think people, by and large, are, are laying low at this point because they're afraid of, of being observed. And, and, you know, after the whole January 6th thing, they're afraid to have too high of a profile. And so, you know, anybody that presents themselves as potentially viable or capable operationally basically puts, puts a target on their back as far as the federal government's concerned. So I, I, to answer that question, I think that's why you're not seeing you know, too many people stand up in meaningful ways um, in any anything that could resemble a martial capability. And uh, at least that's how I read it. I agree. They're laying low because they're waiting for the fight to start. And it, it, visibility is vulnerability. They're not going to increase their visibility for no purpose. They're going to, they'll come out of the woodwork for a purpose. And, and most of them have realized that there's no civil discourse that's going to solve the problem. Because you have, and everybody sees it now, that you have everybody in, in D.C. that is part of the uniparty. There's not a two-party system. There's a two-tier justice system. So they're not going to expose themselves until they absolutely have to. And that's, that's what I see them. And I know there's at least a few groups that have reached out to me that are, that have been organizing for years and years. And they're just waiting for the catalyst. And I, I see that with a lot of groups and communities quietly organizing. And that's going to continue. But the, the separation point is it's going to get bigger. And it's already starting to grow. And you can, you can see this from just the, um, the ham radio community, just being a part of that, seeing the exponential growth in sales. By case in point, there's certain radio models that sell out on Amazon literally every week. And we didn't, I've never seen that before. That tells me that people are starting to pay attention and prepare quietly in the background. And that's the thing that scares the shit out of the feds the most. They've got a certain amount of algorithms, a certain amount of AI that's, that's you know, pre-plotted this and pre-gamed this. But I don't think they're prepared for what's coming. I don't think they're prepared for the sheer volume of conservatives that are coming out of the woodwork now, as well as people that are middle of the road that are moving to the right. I don't, I don't think they're prepared for that. And they're deathly afraid that we're going to organize. And that's already happening despite their best efforts. And, you know, uh, Colonel Conrad and Troop both right. Because of January 6th, people have started lay low. And if you if you look back to the first, the first desert storm, when we... The first F-117 that dropped a bomb 
on a building, a guided munition on a building and a guided munition on an underground bunker, literally every government in the world started digging holes at that moment. In January 6th, same thing. When everybody saw what happened to the January 6th crowd, they started digging holes and they started doing things quietly. So there are groups out there. They're just not going to show themselves until the right time. And if you look at the, the tagline of the channel, it's for domesticated terrorist pets. There's a reason why we signal those types of things because uh, there's a slang term called, you know, being a globa or a glowy when somebody just says, hey, man, how do I learn how to build a bomb? Or they, you know, they utter some kind of asinine thing like that on the channel. Um, so we want these guys to be focused on actual terrorists and actual threats to the country. But what has happened with the with the weaponization of the FBI and these other surveillance agencies? So they've been going after people like your buddy Trooper here, uh, you know, because I have a channel about self-reliance. So I figure we'll just put this right in their faces and that's why you always see in my videos, I go, hello, friends and feds, because we've actually had federal informants sitting on our channel uh, last year and the year before, uh, you know, looking for looking for something bad, you know, like we're going to have a bomb building thing. In fact, one guy asked that and I gave him the address to the Phoenix North field office for the FBI and the special agent in charge and his number. And I said, when you go there, go to the lobby and ask for uh, this guy and where the bomb building classroom is. And I put that out on the channel and it pisses off the feds because it befuddles them because basically they know that you're going like this. Um, but you know, <laughs> we're not, um, we're not, we're not a militia, but we, you know, we do want to communicate and we do want to establish relationships with people that, that have a, a mutual interest in defending the constitution and evolve everybody's self-reliance and individual capabilities. So with, with that, I'll uh, master Sergeant Donna and then Deb, uh, Deb, I'm going to bring you up next, so stand by. Go ahead, Master Sergeant Donna. Yeah, in, in regards to what uh, Colonel Murray said in, in his last uh, uh, accurate analysis, the reason that people are looking for, people are organizing at a very, very base level, but the reason, the purpose that people are looking for, we're looking for our George Washington. And Steve, you and I have talked about this ad nauseum, there's a lot of high-level influencers out there saying this, saying that, but what people are looking for is leadership. They're looking for they're looking for our George Washington. They're looking for our our Jackson, you know, our Colonel Jackson, you know, Battle of New Orleans. That's what people are looking for. We don't know who he is, the wild card. We don't know who he is or when he will surface. I personally don't think it's Trump. I really don't. I think there's someone out there that's going to take the field of battle. And at that point, everyone will coalesce. Who he is, where he is, when he's going to appear, we just don't know. But that's my opinion that uh, right now people are organizing at the base level and trying to control their AORs. But instinctively, people right now are suffering a delta of leadership at the, at the very senior levels. That's my comment. Thank you for that, Master Sergeant. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna respond to two questions uh, that Cerise put out, and then uh, Deb altered me. We're gonna uh, sh thank you for she was responsible for for uh, collecting most of the questions that we addressed. Uh, Cerise had two questions. One of them was for fuel storage. And yeah, keep your, uh, store your fuel out of sunlight, um, hopefully not in your garage. I would say uh, if you have a patio, 
that's north facing, you're better off storing fuel outside in the open air in the shade with stabilizer than you are storing fuel in your garage in an enclosed area, especially if you have, it really doesn't matter if you have a gasoline fired or an electronic triggered um, a water heater because an ignition source is an ignition source either way. Um, and you're never going to store enough fuel to be able to really do anything, right? So I have two generators. I'm starting to cut over everything. And Cerise was on the front end of this as well, as far as uh, the battery generators, which are uh, life before batteries with solar power that charges them that have uh, AC inverters. So it's a battery with a solar panel and a charge controller, and you can plug your laptop into it. Um, you're not going to be able to use that to power your vehicle. Uh, most of us have gasoline and diesel engines. Diesel obviously stores better and longer and more safely than gasoline does. Um, but most of us have gasoline engines and I have no more than five gallons of gasoline that I will store, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother storing more than even 20 gallons of gasoline unless I had something that was more robust than your, your everyday thing that spills gas everywhere when you use it type of container. Uh, there's, there's more purpose-built commercial containers that can store gasoline. You can put fuel stabilizers in them. I recommend that if you're going to do that, go ahead and go find one of the gas stations that actually have um, gasoline that doesn't have ethanol in it. Sometimes they call it racing fuel, but it doesn't have any of the, any of the corn sugar additives to it. So ethanol-free gas stores longer and then put stabilizer in it. Um, I have two generators. I'm going to convert one of them to a propane uh, generator. I'm a big believer in propane. Um, uh, my buddy Tex is totally against propane because he's a boat guy and, uh, you know, propane's a gas and it's explosive, but I have a lot of propane stuff. We'll get into energy uh, conversations, uh, you know, uh, gasoline, diesel, propane, battery, and, and then what the, what the opportunity cost is, what the engineering that goes into it, and then what your individual use case is. Uh, second question before we get to you, Deb, was uh, these energy-directed weapons. Uh, heard about a frequency weapon that could be used against us that would destroy eyes within a mile and a half. Anything to say about that? Uh, is that particularly why we're being told the only thing to do is leave cities if the shit hits a fan. Energy-directed weapons, EMPs, and all that other stuff. And I know I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm divergent in some of the consensus on this. But uh, energy weapons require a lot of power. They're generally very heavy, and they're generally directed weapons, meaning that you have to aim them at something. And I think it's the the M the MRAD or something like that. It's a crowd control. Uh, type of sub microwave thing. It's a big panel and you can aim that at a group of people and then they'll get uncomfortable and it's designed to disperse uh, that type of things. Those are very expensive. They're very easy to identify. They have to be transported into a, a, a conflict space and they're easily disabled. Uh, so I wouldn't worry about those. Um, having some type of weapon like that on an aircraft or, you know, like the War of the Worlds where you have these energy weapons that are just incinerating people, I don't think that's a legitimate uh, threat or concern. And even the, uh, the uh, lasers that we've tested on, on airframes are just absolutely massive things. And uh, they're, they're very specialized pieces of equipment to intercept high velocity projectiles like inbound missiles and stuff. So they're not, um, I, don't, I don't see those things. Even if our government, even if Biden really did want to use F-16s to blow up your neighborhood, I doubt he would have access or uh, the ability to field those types of weapons. So these uh, these directed energy weapons and laser beams and all these other things, I don't I don't think those are a legitimate threat. And I'll let the colonels talk to that before I get to Deb.
Steve, go ahead. Okay, can you hear me? Gotcha. Uh, you have to repeat the question. You're breaking up for me. Um, the question was directed energy weapons, and are they a risk to the civilian population if we go totalitarian? And You know, I think your comments were spot on. That, you know, that they haven't miniaturized enough of them to make them effective, and my my view of that is those are better on disarmed crowds than on armed crowds. If you're trying to subdue an armed crowd, guess what's going to happen? They're going to blow that shit up. That's how that's going to work. So I wouldn't worry about it right now. The, th the thing I would be paying attention to right now is watching what the next steps are going to be for uh, and what's coming out of our government, you know, what's the rhetoric coming out? Because they always prep us with stuff coming out. And like in New York, they're talking, telling people to have bug out bags and have food and water in their apartments. They've been saying that for over a year now. So obviously they're prepping New York for some kind of an event. They're only going to use those weapons uh, in crowd control situations. And I, that's not something I worry about. I'm more worried about figuring out who's in my neighborhood right now. Just saying. I would just I would just throw in his comment. Um, I think you know who knows what kind of technology they have. I'm, I'm aware of some of those less than lethal threat type systems. I agree. It, as as we go up the escalation chain, um, some of that goes out the window. But the one thing people need to keep in mind when you hear somebody like Joe Biden claim nobody can fight us or stand up to us. We have F-15s and we have M1 tanks. Well. There's plenty of guerrilla forces who've been very successful. And we have to keep in mind that the people who drive those tanks and fly those planes have to go home and sleep somewhere. So there's, there's vulnerabilities to every system that gets presented. Um, you know, I can recall when AOC was on the screen talking, hollering at Nancy Pelosi uh, on January 6th and, and uh, also hollering at then president-elect Biden, she seemed to be just about out of her mind in, in frantic hysteria. And a lot of people thought that was fake. I'm not entirely convinced it was fake. I think that, I think there's a genuine fear amongst a lot of these people that, uh, that would be at the high end of the food chain in a totalitarian state because they know what the numbers are. And they know that, that they're actually a lot more vulnerable than most people think. And so, um, yeah, I'm not so worried about it. I, I think like Steve said in the past, you know, we want to keep things peaceful and proceed in, in a uh, reasonable situation because you don't want, you know, civil society to break down. Bad things happen when that occurs. And when it's time to grab your gun, you'll know. You won't have to be told. You'll know. Thank you for that, Colonel. All right, Deb Dingy, thank you. Uh, I got you unmuted and asked away. Hi, everybody. I just wanted to say um, I have no idea. I joined uh, Oregon Elections Integrity Team on Telegram probably like three years ago, and I have no idea how I got connected to Lieutenant 
Murray's channel <laughs> and poor, poor Steve. I know you're rolling your eyes. I was always the one that's like hands up, asking questions, blah, 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 blah. Because there was so much information coming out from your channel that I appreciate so much that I had no knowledge of and asking questions and moving forward. Um, I'm probably only on four channels uh, on Telegram, uh, Washington, Oregon, and a couple of uh, obviously Trooper and Steve's channel, but um, maybe one or two others. But I think it was really interesting, which prompted me to do this was uh, people would listen to Trooper talk, um, Lieutenant Colonel Murray talk, um, and when they would speak, their conversations not only were on these channels, but they would go over to Bard's, uh, Scott Kesterson's channel, and a few others. And I would sit there and read them, and I and all these people were going, "I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what he meant. I wish they would elaborate." So this is why I kind of like jumped forward and just wanted to do this. And Trooper, I really appreciate you doing this, like opening up a, um, a chat channel. And the only reason why I, I, I tried to collect a lot of questions from a lot of people from all over the base, and I kind of turned it into a round table instead of a chat. And the only reason why, and Lieutenant Colonel Murray, you're going to roll your eyes. You always use, you, you always say, and you still do, because we're not invited to the table. And I wanted to make this group, we're all invited to the table. And I'm going to end it right here. And thank Absolutely. you. I, Absolutely. I love this. I, I love that um, everybody participated. And anyway, I'm going to shut. So anybody else can ask questions. Thank you, you guys. Our, our mission is to educate, not pontificate. That's right. And, and for the record, I'm not rolling my eyes. All right, I'm looking at uh, uh, Elite building their own bunkers. Yeah, and I think you could buy some old abandoned missile silos. I've seen some of that stuff too, uh, Cerise. But, you know, the let's talk about building bunkers for a moment. So if for whatever reason my phone goes off and it tells me that there's intercontinental ballistic missiles that are inbound and Luke Air Force Base, Palo Verde plants over there, um, I'm going to go and fuck my wife. And then I'm going to get a bottle of scotch or maybe make, you know, some sun tea or something. And I'm going to get my dogs and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to face uh, the direction of the enemy. And I'm going to light up a cigar and I'm going to wait to get incinerated. I am not going to live in a fucking hole. And so all of these people that, that, um, and that's why I say, you know, five weeks, I'm starting to, to revise my five week thing with your food and water to five months, because I was always planning around natural disasters, not necessarily uh, election disasters. But uh, but either way, when you're when you're at that point where you think you needed to dig a hole, or you're at that point where you think you need to bury your weapons, that's the point where you need to load those weapons, and that's the point where you need to get ready. So, yeah, um, uh, people who are uh, narcissistic and and really want the rest of the world to die, they can dig a hole and they can live in that hole, and you know, good for them. But uh, for, for the rest of us, for us surface dwellers here, I don't. I think it's good to be self-reliant. I don't think it's good to dig a hole in your backyard and, and hide from the reality. This is our country. 
and it's our responsibility to protect this nation for our offspring and it's our responsibility to to live the values that that we we want other people to abide by in a functional society right so if we don't climb into a hole we're not going to come out 20 years later like a bunch of locusts and all this is going to be over we're just we're going to be ant food and, and that'll be the end of our society so um, I'm not a big I'm not a big hole digger guy. I would rather rather die in the fight. I mean, I prefer to make the other guy die in the fight, but I'm not going to live in a hole. And the reality is, you're not going to get any notice when the bombs are on the way. They're just going to they're just going to start blowing up because you sub launch missile. You have minutes. You're not going to have enough time to do anything. And you got to remember the National Command Authority. Once they get indications of some kind of a launch, they have minutes to make a decision. Then you have to go through the whole decision cycle. What do we do? By that time, the bombs are on the ground. You're not going to have a chance. And why worry about it, right? There's no reason to worry about it. Because if that happens, and I don't want to be here. Yeah, I don't want to live with radiation sickness and, and all the rest of that nonsense afterwards. I'd rather just go with a flash, call it good, be done. But I, I don't think that's going to happen anyway. There's no incentive for anybody to use nuclear weapons. There's just not. It's such a you got to keep it. In, you got to keep it in perspective. It's such it's such a toxic weapon that even a persistent chemical agent is such a such a toxic agent that they don't want to use it because once you once you release that into the environment, it never leaves, and things mutate, things change. And you can't control the mutations. That's why the biological thing is so insidious, because you can't control the mutations. And if if we take all the science at face value from the 50s and 60s, where they were actually releasing real science, you will see that the reason why we stayed away from persistent agents and nuclear weapons was not the weapons and the destructive power. It was the second and third order effects after the fact and the amount of radiation and the half-life of the radiation that kept us from using those weapons. So why worry about it? I, I concur, absolutely. And I, you know, and I never worried about a China or a Russia having nuclear weapons. I was worried about like a, you know, North Korea or a fundamentalist, uh, you know, uh, Iran having nuclear weapons. But uh, I, yeah, this, this is something uh, we're, we'll be digging in. And the only hole I'm gonna dig is to fix a, a sprinkler line, so. All right, so we've been uh, we've had a pretty amazing live chat here. So I'm gonna uh, open it up for a couple more questions before we we shut it down. And uh, thank you, uh, Colonel Murray, and thank you, Colonel Conrad. Can I say one more? Go ahead. I'm sorry, it's Debbie again. I just this is a minute, a very very minute um, situation that happened in my area i always lived on 20 acres and i moved into a 55 older community there's like 300 houses so long story short we lost water for two days and it was simply amazing um we have a little facebook chat in our community and people were like losing their minds because we we didn't have water for two days and this one lady was worried about her aquarium going dry and i thought to myself well i'll have a great fish fry. but anyway some people were that's what i think brought up a question from the lady i think trooper you nailed it um she was saying that she was storing all these uh jugs of uh milk jugs with drops of uh, uh bleach to you know keep 
water and stuff. So I really appreciate you hitting on the fact that that's probably not a great, you know, thing to do it that way. But um, I'm sorry. Long, <laughs> the long story short is that in 300 homes, when you don't have water for two days, it's just mind blowing. Knowing what I've known and learned from Lieutenant Kern, Colonel Murray and Trooper and the rest of you guys that how people are not prepared. And I really, really yeah, appreciate all the, I really appreciate everything you do and I'll shut up now. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank, uh, you, uh, you want to, you want to be able to uh, identify, collect, transport, filter, purify, uh, and store water in consumable, uh, containers. So you, you guys know on my channel, I've written extensively about that. Uh, Jeannie, I see you, uh, coming up. So, uh, go ahead, Jeannie. Yes. You can hear me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. I just want to tell you real quick, this is the best chat I have ever heard. This is absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Troop, Steve, Donna, and Conrad. I mean, absolutely awesome. And I also want to do a shout out to Deb for having heard the persistence because it paid. Anyway, my question is real quick to, to Steve. He started a thought about Bill Gates going to China and his $50 million donation. And I was hoping you could finish that thought. So I've been noodling on that for uh, for the last 48 hours. And, and I know Colonel Conrad's got a view on this, so I'll, I'll give him a chance a second. Um, I've had a lot of conversations about it. There's, there's a couple of different scenarios that you can draw out of this. The first one is we've been talking about a coup in China for a very long time. And if you know anything about the Communist, Chinese Communist Party, it's a loose affiliation of groups and there's a lot of different nuances to it. And it, just trying to track all the nuances of how that system works is a two-hour conversation. But suffice it to say, I've talked about this in a sit rep. The two senior guys next to G absolutely detest one another. That is a perfect storm for an intelligence agency to get in and disrupt that relationship and create chaos in the Chinese Communist Party, or worse, conduct a coup. And Gates going over there could mean one of a myriad of things. It could mean he's going over to ingratiate himself to Xi and try and get in good graces with Xi because he knows the end's coming here. He could be over there as a messenger to say, we want you to play ball or we're going to conduct a coup. Or it could be Bill Gates going over there to capitulate. Who knows? If it was me, what I wanted to see, I wanted to see them quietly execute that son of a bitch and then say, we executed him for crimes against humanity. He's responsible for the Wuhan the Wuhan debacle, he's responsible for all the World Health Organization, he's responsible for the vaccines, but that in and of itself could blow up and go three different ways, all of them bad for China. So if I watch Xi's body language, what I see is a guy that's playing along, not necessarily bought in. Because if you watch the interaction, the interaction is very tenuous. And you can read that a number of ways. I honestly don't know what the catalyst would be for Gates to go over there. 
Microsoft already has a foothold over there. China already has the source code for the Microsoft kernel. So I'm not exactly sure what he would be doing over there. And more importantly, I'm not exactly sure why Xi would actually put him on TV. That was a televised event. You only do televised events like that if you're trying to promote somebody or if you're getting ready to rip somebody apart. And you can read it either way. I honestly, I don't have an opinion yet. I'm waiting to see what the next things are that come out of this before I make an opinion. The, the thing that I think is very important to all of this is watching what Macron is doing after Gates goes to to Beijing. I think that's going to be the that's going to be the tell because Macron was the first one to go. Macron was the first one to say we don't need to support Ukraine and we don't need to stand with the U.S. And now Gates goes over there. The next question is going to be who's next. That's the tell. Dave, you got a comment on that one? Yeah, just a couple quick things. First, I'm, I'm probably even more interested in what Bill Gates is doing with mosquito hatching farms than what he's doing in China because of the potential threat from biologic warfare perspective in, in, in that regard. Um, you know, people talk about who's, who's the superior, who's dominant. Is it the deep state? Is it China? I mean, on the one hand, China is an enormously old culture, but on the other hand, it's a relatively new country. And, you know, uh, the deep state and China, I think, are going to act like any nation states in history. They're both going to leverage whatever advantage they can from the situation, uh, utilizing each other's resources to the best that they can until it's no longer in their, in their interests. And so, you know, I see Gates going over there, whether he's as an emissary or not, as a show of united front between the deep state and China. And that may be, that, that may be a sort of a collective hug for the world to see, um, you know, a, a message, if you will, a visual message uh, to the rest of us that, hey, um, you know, there's some, there's some new power players here. The United States is not just it anymore. But you're right. We don't know why he's there. And, uh, you know, for a guy who went to India, spent 16 years spreading vaccines that killed and crippled people before they finally threw them out, it's rather difficult to guess. It could be any number of reasons. So got to end that, you know, end that with uh, just saying, I don't know, but uh, it's not great either way. All right. So we're going to... Uh... Oh, go ahead, Colonel. Oh, Donna, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Steve asked me this question the other night, and I thought about it a lot. And I think he was sent. I think he was sent over there as the low man on the totem pole of the elites to bow the knee. And I think it was basically uh, messaging. He was being called to the carpet to you know bow the knee, and I bet you he was. Uh, I bet you he was asked the question, the, the bottom line question. What happened with the vaccines? What happened with the plan? It didn't work. I mean, I mean, I've seen a lot of reports that not as many people took the vaccine as was originally reported, you know, and uh, it, it's, it's killed. Certainly it's killed a lot of people and it will continue to kill a lot of people into the future. But uh, we're still standing strong. We're still Americans. You know, 
we're still having this meeting right here, you know, right here on the Trooper channel. So I don't think their plans are working out quite as well as it did. And I think that uh, Gates was called over there, you know, as the, uh, the, um, the clown, the joker of the court of the elites to do some explaining to the emperor. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, we're, uh, we're Oh, go ahead, Chris. Chris again. Um, I had a question for you, for uh, Colonel Murray was talking about body language and Master Sergeant Donner was talking about earlier about his view on things. Um, and I know, I know me saying this is kind of like pissing into a bucket full of holes, but uh, Trump came to my hometown in South Carolina uh, when he ran the first time and no other president presidential candidate has ever come to my hometown um this week our executive committee members for our local party got wind that his volunteers his direct staff were going to be coming down here to do some stuff and wanted to get volunteers i can't for the life of me understand i mean it's it's it's, it's worse than a monkey fucking a football because, you know, there's been so much back and forth with all these leaders and everything. Um, I can't understand why he's so calm and why he still thinks that no matter what, he's going to win the next election. Like, to me, if I were him, I would be looking for the guy that's trying to shoot me in the back right now. And he's walking around buying people food. He's campaigning. He's walking in and out of the courts like he knows something that nobody else does. And I would say, and, and, and I'm not saying that the guy's an angel because he's not, but I would say he's more confident now than he was in 2016 when he came to my hometown. And it's just, I can't, I can't understand it. I don't pay attention to it, Chris. And I'll tell you why. Because remember that on the national stage, all of this is theatrics. It doesn't matter what, who, or where. Everything is theatrics. And Trump's on the level with the way he treats soldiers, the way he treats Gold Star families, the way he treats uh, law enforcement. He's on the level, right? But you got to remember, he's campaigning. So there's a certain amount of showmanship and staged um, performances that he has to do to maintain public appearance. And you wouldn't want him to be dishinged or unhinged on TV or anywhere because of any of this, because it shows weakness. And he's got people, remember, the president has a hundred assholes around him at all times. He doesn't fart unless somebody is around him to tell him when to fart. And literally, he doesn't make a decision to do anything. His schedule is basically done by his staff. He does his, his glad hand. He gets briefed in the morning. His day is packed. You think any of, the, any of that's changed since Trump left office? The only thing that's changed is that most of his meetings are done on the golf course now and that his, his social calendar is dominated versus his political and his national security calendars. Those are, those are off the plate right now. But he, if you watch his actions since he left office, I mean, first of all, Trump's surrounded by complete fucking morons. 
He he surrounds himself with people that are just they're window lickers, literally. That's why he got in trouble in the first place. He's finally started to get some people around him that understand how to do this business and keep up public appearances. That's why you're seeing the difference. And they also know if they show any weakness to this to this group of communists in D.C., they're gonna they're 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 sniffing for blood. So they're going to go after him at any turn if he shows any amount of weakness. And let's face it, if I if I take the, the press at face value, he has a higher moral ground. If I take the actions of the deep state right now, Trump has the higher moral ground. I'd be calm too. Everything they do to him makes him a martyr. I mean, if if you're running a campaign. My God, this is a this is a campaign manager's wet dream to have this amount of malfeasance put in front of the American public just before a major election. This absolutely galvanizes everybody on the fence that Trump's the guy. And look at how much disdain people have for Mike Pence and DeSantis now. It has nothing to do with what they've done, even though DeSantis is a fucking snake oil salesman. But when you step away from that, just the fact that the media is doing the work that his campaign should be doing is a wet dream for his campaign manager. That's that's why you're seeing him do the things he's doing. He doesn't have to, to be stressed out. All the work's being done for him, and he doesn't even have to think about it. Look at his poll numbers just in the last week since his indictment in Florida. They have They have risen sharply, and they're going to continue to rise. Why? Because everything they put in the bank literally is being taken out as fast as it's being put in. Whereas Trump's on the other side, his bank accounts are growing because he's he's not putting anything into it. He's just sitting there watching this happen, letting the public opinion sway his way. And that's why you're seeing this. It, it has nothing to do with the fact that he thinks he's going to win the election. He's just keeping up appearances. So... That's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> all right. We're going to do another round of questions. And um, I had a lot of questions for Billy's Way Home, and that's Brandy Chard. So those of you who see me doing the medical mission out there at the homeless camps, um, I am only supporting Brandy. She wasn't able to make it tonight because I, I told her, hey, I'm having a live chat tonight. And she went, your planning is uh, you know tremendous, right? So. We're going to do a separate live chat for, for Billy's Way Home for the homeless mission. And also, I'll probably invite Anthony later on. This is another homeless camp. And we're not out there trying to save people. We're out there identifying field sanitation issues. Uh, there's a lot of mass care situations out there. Uh, there's a lot of what I've said. This is a pharmaceutical genocide that's being orchestrated by our own government to kill off these useless eaters. And again, the... Uh, the, the, the action of fentanyl is it's a hundred times more addictive than methamphetamines or crack cocaine or cigarettes or anything else. And my view of this terrorism is that they've already handed out because they have all these social outreach things for this at-risk population. These people have, they have no mentorship. They're, they're disassociated from their family. They clearly have no discipline or self-control. Um, so they let these addictions drive them. 
they get pulled into these these functional apparatuses where they will go ahead and register them to vote, collect all of their information, figure out exactly who they are, and then they let them load up on fentanyl until they're eventually identified as a John Doe or a, a Jane Doe dead out in a canal somewhere. They get buried in Potter's Field with no identification, and then they continue to vote posthumously for the next 10 or 20 years as Democrats. So I think that this is definitely um, another chemical terrorism through through pharmaceuticals that's happening is being allowed to happen in our country and attack the, our most vulnerable population and as i tell everybody on this channel you're more powerful than you think you are you just have to find your inner strength and when somebody goes out there and spends time and validates them and communicates with them and makes them believe in themselves. There's some of us on the channel that people think, you know, oh, Trooper, you know, he's awesome. Well, Trooper's had some self-reflective moments in his life too, where he didn't think he was very valuable. And I think, um, you know, some of the other veterans on the channel might agree with me and we lose a lot of veterans every day because they lose sight of that. So our mission out there is not to treat wounds. It is to treat people and make sure that we're, somebody's got to have that rear guard and watch the six of our lowest common denominator because the reason why they're the lowest common denominator is because nobody gives a shit about them and they lose faith in themselves. So we're trying to bring them up and we're trying to make sure that we can get our fellow Americans back into functional society. And at the same time, we can do a tactical assessment of this is reality. Um, I did a video where I was showing that the guy that was had the bike parts and and then there's a clothing that's over here and there's some people bartering over there and of course there's some assholes dealing drugs over here and i know if i murdered them i would only go to prison and there would be a hundred more drug dealers the next day so there you know sometimes you have to deal with threats that are in your environment and you you have to be very careful how you address some of those threats in your environment because it could it, you you could grenade your own mission if you don't have a lack of you know if you have a lack of engagement discipline so those are real threats out there but we have to figure out not just how to how to serve our, our community and people that we care about because they're our neighbors or whatever, or our family, but we have to also figure out how to engage with the rest of the community because when this stuff goes kinetic or our government breaks down or whatever the case may be is going to happen, there's not only going to be more of these sanitation issues and more of these medical issues, but there's going to be more of a need to understand how to how to communicate and maneuver and network through this now reality of your environment, which is going to be whatever the homeless population is that you see multiplied by at least 40 or 60 percent of the population that's currently housed. So it's it's an important mission and there's a lot to it. Again, I'm just I'm supporting uh, Brandy and her mission with with just a I have nothing better to do with my training and I don't have any grandkids, as you know. So, you know, I, I don't mind going out there and helping people. Um, but we will have Brandy on so that she can speak to her, her own organization and, and we'll put the topics around, uh, around that. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to address that. And then with the, with the medicine and the, uh, the preparation, I've said, you know what you should do if you're on any medication, I'm on this thing called the Vorostatin. I was on 10 milligrams. Now I'm down to five. It's like a cholesterol thing. Um, I call my doctor every 90 days and uh, I say, hey, I got to travel to a foreign country. I'm not going to have access to any refills or prescriptions. I need a 90 day supply or 180 day supply, whatever I can get. Um, and of course, try to work to get off of <clears throat> any of these drugs. But if you're on drugs, any kind of prescribed medication or anything that has a storage uh, capability, um, some doctors will issue you uh, your medications for up to a year, but get as many as you can. And then also, Pull the, uh, if you have the money, because you'll probably have to pay for it, 
pull the card of, oops, you know what? I went to Circle K. I left my door unlocked. Somebody grabbed my bag and, uh, you know, my, my prescription was in it. I, I need another 90 or 180 day supply. And then you might have to pay for that. But then now you have a little bit of buffer. So for especially for, for you guys that are on critical care medicines that you can't go without, you know, for a few days. So there's that. Um, and uh, thank you, everybody. I'm going to do one more round of questions. Go ahead, uh, Master Sergeant Donovan, let everybody know. Uh, raise your hand or chime in. And then we're yeah, going just, to just, close. Yeah, down. I just want to, I just want to, yeah, Trooper, I just wanted to say um, this is one of the uh, best uh, broadcasts you've ever done. I mean, your, your information is just so vital to the movement, and you reach so many people. And I send your stuff out on truth because that's primarily where my home is. But uh, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to do this and staying in the fight, both you and, and Colonel Murray. And uh, really, really um, great to see Colonel Conrad in the team also. It's wonderful. But uh, I got four-letter agency calling me right now. Four-letter agency would be W-I-F-E. So <laughs> I got to sign off for the evening. But uh, um, thank you again for all that you do. Thanks for that, Master Sergeant Donna. Uh, so, Colonel Conrad, I'm going to uh, let you uh, close with any any thoughts, uh, and then uh, Colonel Murray, and then I'll sh I'll shut it down after that. No, you can't. Oh, go ahead, Deb. Go ahead. You made it in under the wire. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just like I just want to comment on your um, all the stuff that you're doing with Billy's thing. I've expanded it to uh, the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of people that um, joined. And um, it goes back to the people don't speak out or they don't ask questions. And that's kind of where I stepped in. They're asking questions they want to know, but they're too afraid to ask. So that's why I jumped into you. So long story short, I have a, um, a friend who is, has been a pharmacist for 36 years. Long story short, and this can go both ways. She... Um, she had an estranged relationship with her daughter who turned into a nurse in Washington, the state of Washington. Her daughter died at 30 years old. Um, she knows her daughter died from the vaccines. However, I, I kind of threw some stuff out, which is she follows you. She follows you on, she follows Billy's um, um, uh, platform on Facebook. But she's like watching everything you're doing. And she just, I, I reached out to her and I said, would you be willing to like step in and listen to what Trooper's doing with all these homeless people and maybe suggest something that you're not covering, which you cover a lot to advise people that things that they, not only for homeless people, but all of us could go buy over the counter. And she would be willing to do that. So I don't want to take up time, but I hope that we can do this um, in the future and uh, do these, you know, Q&As or roundtables or whatever, because there's a lot of people that are afraid to ask questions. They're afraid to ask because they're, they think they're going to get in trouble or people are think they're stupid or whatever, but um, if you're willing to do that, Trooper, let me know. You can DM me and I can put you in contact with her. And she follows Billy's thing and she she loves the whole thing that she's doing. So anyway.
Trooper, I think you may be muted. I'm not hearing you. Oh, there I am. Thank you for that, Deb. Yeah, uh, have her have her contact me. And so the way the channels um, are split up right now, uh, we're we have a lot of content that we're putting out, obviously. And so we started the Trooper channel for more of the kind of genre of stuff that I do. And then I still do the you know the threat assessments and all the other comprehensive stuff that I'll either write for OSIN or Colonel Murray. Um, but we realized that we were putting so much information out there that we had to we had to have individual channels just so we didn't overwhelm our users. Uh, so um, there's a lot of overlap too, and we're still trying to figure out how to um, you know how to deconflict a lot of stuff. And but I, I appreciate that. So the uh, the uh, have have that person get with me, and I'm always open to to learning more. And then I have put out uh, videos on first aid and the type of first aid stuff that I use. And these hydrocolloidal dressings are a blessing. Um, we probably use those more than anything else. And then uh, uh, Terry C, I see you're on here. And a lot of people from the Trooper channel, from Colonel Murray's channel, overwhelmed Billy. She was crying that first week we went out there uh, because the following week you guys went on her Amazon and she said, oh my God, Trooper, my entire house is full of stuff. And then all the stuff that was delivered those cooling towels and um and the, the the food and all the consumables those are consumed within the first two weeks as soon as she gets them there i mean we go directly out to the field and all those women are i mean they're out there every day we're going to be out there tomorrow and it's going to be like 107 degrees and you know what bill gates isn't out there and uh none of the fucking democrats are out there I mean, no offense to anybody that's that's a Democrat, but uh, they're not out there. We are. Conservatives are out there. Christians are out there. People that have a true human connection to people, and they don't expect anything in return. And one of the most annoying things is you'll have church groups, and you'll have the media, and you'll have other people that just want to you know, put their face on camera and go, ooh, look at the homeless person, and they don't contribute anything. And the the worst part of it is, uh, because you're not you're servicing a solution you're not trying to solve a problem and that's the thing we're actually trying to solve a problem um but uh, a company in order to have goodwill value especially as this emotional social governments and uh, diversity equity and inclusion and all these other fucking buzzwords um our end users are usually getting blown up by a jdam guided small diameter fucking bomb so i don't know how invested they are in our diversity equity and inclusion initiatives but these homeless people are kind of in the same spectrum and it, it frustrates me when I see a company spend over $100,000 on T-shirts to say, you know, Trooper Corp cares. And then we ruin a bunch of employees weekends because they don't want to be at the soup kitchen just so we can get a couple of pictures of them ladling soup out to, you know, to people that they don't care about. And then they do that once a year. If we were to take that same amount of money that that company invested for that goodwill and we were to fund an organization like Billy's Way Home, I could literally build more of those water dispensing units for for other uh, homeless charities. Um, you know, we, we could provide better, uh, you know, I've had to improvise because I run out of medical stuff out there. So we could provide medical, uh, better medical care for them or even possibly transport when we have to evacuate or encourage the evacuation of some people. Um, but, you know, it's, it's easier for a corporation to just do a tax write-off to blow a hundred grand on a bunch of t-shirts and, you know, get a photo op. And then they put that on their 10K report under the DEI so that the government doesn't fuck with them. So I, I appreciate any, any help that, that she can get, um, and, and that I could get, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't take donations or anything, but it's, it, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes into that. So I, I appreciate the, uh, 
the investment that you've had to put to get that message out, uh, you know, to people, especially to invest in Billy uh, Billy's Way Home Facebook channel, because a lot of us are not on Facebook. And then she has the uh, the the that structure, that five hundred one c structure, to take uh, donations and stuff, so that we can utilize them out there. Um, so I got a little long winded on that. Uh, Jim, I'm going to let you go, and then I'm going to hand it off, uh, and we're going to close it down. All right, Colonel Conrad, uh, thank you for coming on the channel, and thank you for your insight. Do uh, you have any closing thoughts for us? And I'm going to hand it off to Colonel Murray, and, and then I'm going to shut it down. Uh, just a couple brief things. First, I appreciate uh, the invitation. I think that uh, you and Steve do a fantastic job, and I'm honored to be on with you. Um, second, um, with regard to Donald Trump, I do see him as a center of gravity. I think the guy is a unique leader. I can't think of anybody else that can step into those shoes and perform at that level. I love Ronald Reagan. I never thought we'd see such a president as him in our lifetime. But for crying out loud, Donald Trump was inspiring rallies in places like Beverly Hills and London and Australia and uh, Tokyo, for heaven's sakes. I think that's, that's something that's, uh, I don't know anybody who could duplicate that. So I think we need to continue to support him because I think he's the guy. The last comment I have is, is kind of a strange one, but I'm a student of history. And uh, this is a true story. You know, we talk about a lot of scenarios and a lot of things going on and how to prepare and whatnot. At the end of the Battle of Iwo Jima, when the Marine Corps had already consolidated and controlled pretty much all of the, the island, the Air Force was setting up to launch their B-29s. The Marine Corps collected up all of the ammunition from their troops because they didn't want people getting hurt or screwing around. It was just at that time that a number of Japanese came out of caves and were able to launch a series of attacks, killing a number of Americans who were literally unarmed, no ammunition. Fortunately, there were a few Americans who didn't submit to that order and uh, used some common sense that were able to fight them off and kill them. Most people don't know that story, but it's true. It's also rather tragic, but the point is we have to expect the unexpected. And so there's, there's always a wild card in the deck, no matter how carefully we plan. So we just have to keep that in the back of our mind and, and do what we think is the right thing. So thanks again. Appreciate being on. I think uh, you guys are doing great. Thanks. Thank you, Colonel Conrad. Uh, Colonel Murray. Thanks for jumping on, Dave. Appreciate the comments, man. Uh, I, the good thing about these things, by the way, thanks, Debs, for, for uh, being persistent to do this. I, I got to be tr fully transparent. Live chats are very hard to do for a variety of reasons. One is time. Two is you can cover so much ground. Three is getting everybody herded into one place. It's, it's extremely hard. Even if you plan it, it's hard. So thanks for being persistent. Uh, hopefully everybody got tonight that, and, and just, so I'm, just so I'm crystal clear, Colonel Conrad and I have had many conversations about a variety of topics. And the good thing about having those conversations is, hopefully you heard tonight, he doesn't always agree with everything I have to say. I don't always agree with everything he has to say. The point is, 
you're getting multiple different views on the situation. And I'm not always right. He's not always right. Troops not always right. The point is, we're having the dialogue to get you to critically think. If you do anything, and this goes back to Lawrence Gonzalez's book, Deep Survival, if you do anything when all this kicks off, if you accept the situation you're in and you move forward to make decisions, you're going to be all right. If we give you that much critical thinking from these conversations, then that, in my mind, is a success. Everything else is, is noise. I don't pay attention to the national level or the politics at the national level because it's noise. We're past the point of civil discourse fixing the elections. In my mind, and, and Colonel Conrad can, can disagree with me as, as much as he wants, but in my mind, we're past that point. We've reached the culmination point. We're actually past the culmination point, and we're waiting for the next step. If you hear me say anything tonight, make human connections. That's the most important thing you can do right now. What Troop does is what we should be. That's who we are. Don't forget that. That's what set this country apart from every other country on the planet was the fact that the Americans step in and we help people. We don't politicize it. We don't take our cut. We help people. That's what we were built on. That's who we are. Don't forget that. Spread the word. This is how we win. This is the unity that we need to win. That's my two cents. Thank you, Colonel. And, and you, know, you know, every every one of us has a unique skill. We're individually capable of sharing some type of knowledge. And I look at it kind of like the all ships rise with the tide. We're all going to march up the hill together. And some slower or faster than others. But um, uh, Teddy uh, Spaghetti that's on, he's, he's an expert that does formal training for those of you that want to uh, advance your, your skills uh, either in, in self-defense or to get good counsel on where to get the appropriate training. And we have uh, Juno and uh, uh, Dragon Six that both I think are pretty advanced in gardening and, and Charisse that discovered batteries uh, be, you know, before all the rest of us. And there's just a whole bunch of different skills on the channel. So I don't want anybody to think that they have to walk through the world being a, an absolute lexicon and Funkin' Wagnalls of all things information, right? None of us are Google. Some of us are better at, at some things than others, but as long as you're willing to share and communicate and then share and communicate with others and learn from others, then we're gonna, we're gonna do what we need to be doing. Uh, so thank you all for, for showing up. We had quite a few people. I'd like to thank uh, Jersey Lee. Uh, Jersey Lee did some recording. And so he's gonna, he had one technical difficulty halfway through, but he's gonna uh, piece together this and, and get most of it um, uh, uh, for download for people who couldn't make it tonight. So thank you for that. And uh, Jim, I think um, we missed you on the comment. I apologize for that. You wanna break in before I go or? Just a real quick comments. <clears throat> Deb, reach out in the same situation. I'm in a electronically gated 55 community and that presents some issues so please reach out to me secondly on the comments pertaining to freeze drying and dehydrating 
remember that dehydrating, you only get about 40% of the nutrients. I mean, you're cooking the food, basically. And dehydrating, you get 90 plus, or uh, I'm sorry, um, quick freezing, you get uh, 95%. And I know we're trying to wrap this up, so I'm going to go. Thank you, Jim. All right, everybody. Uh, we've had our live chat. We started at eight. So one, two, three, uh, almost three and a half hours. That's a pretty good live chat. I like the open format. Um, I, we do have to constrain the, the topics or the subject matter to the live chat, but I don't necessarily want to constrain the time as long as uh, our guest speakers are, are able to accommodate it. So again, thank you, Master Sergeant Donna, for chiming in there, uh, Colonel Murray and, and Colonel Conrad and the rest of you. And I'm going to go ahead and unplug it now. Trooper out.